All right, so we're, we're live, um, and we could be heard on YouTube. So if anyone in the chat on YouTube, uh, please, I'd like to start off by just verifying that the audio and video is coming through uh, okay. So if you give a thumbs up um, or, you know, just give a signal that, that you can hear us and that you can see the audio, see the video, uh, fine, and then we'll uh, continue. And I know there's a delay, so um, this is your brother, Wujau, Maneb Erdi Ma'at. And today we're going to uh, have a follow-up discussion um, based on the earlier discussion this morning on the subject of um, it was between Asar Motep and the brother Nechaneb. And the topic was a linguistic, excuse me, a lesson in linguistics and philology, advancing the debate on the meaning of Kemet. And both brothers gave a very good um, presentation uh, between the two. It was, it was pretty lengthy, so hopefully everyone had time to get their uh, coffee or tea or some snacks and uh, was able to digest uh, some of the information. It's definitely gonna be a point of um, rewinding and reviewing what was presented to actually digest it because linguistics is something that is um, often overlooked and taken for granted simply because all of us born speaking a language, we, we uh, do it on a day-to-day, everyday, all day. So it seems normal and we're kind of numb to the specifics of it. And so when you hear these new terms, new terminologies and how things are done, it may be overwhelming. So it's always good to uh, slow things down and and look it over uh, many times. So uh, am I being heard? Uh, let me see. OK, everyone gave a thumbs up. All right. So uh, um, I have a, a small panel here inside of our session and maybe in a few we will open it up to everyone. But um, we want to kick it off and keep the scope of the conversation based on the earlier discussion. So uh, I'm going to pass the mic. Um, the mic is in the middle of the floor. Um, anybody in here can walk up to it and um, and give your comments, commentary, questions. We have the brother Sarmotep uh, uh, in the building to be able to clarify anything that he needs to clarify based on what he uh, presented today. So I'm going to um, mute myself and uh, the floor is open. And don't everyone all speak at once. <laughs> ETM Hotel, Rene Sean. Uh, welcome to Peace with Name and Sean. Thanks for do- having the discussion, the follow up discussion. And uh, thanks to Brother Netanel for his efforts and his work. And Brother Sar for his efforts and his work as well. Um, and the opening of the discussion that was had. Because I'm not framing it as a debate. In the discussion, um, I was able to follow along a lot of teaching moments earlier on. Um, I just had one question just to start the flow of this this whole after party, and um, that is, why did you only use five cognates? Asar. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> now the, the standard is three and so I I my minimum is five just in case you don't like one or two you want to debate one or two which means the, the other three minimum is solid so you couldn't argue the whole point it wouldn't make a difference with your whole point regardless. this is why you increase the number of of but you want to have 
that series. And so this is the point that I'm trying to make again, that a, a cognitive is only a cognitive within a community of cognitive. Uh, excuse me, so, uh, excuse me, sorry, real quick. Um, I don't, you sound like you're breaking up a little bit. Like your your volume is good, but you coming in a little choppy. To uh, where? Uh, I mean, is that is that just me or anybody else hearing him the same? To you, saying he's breaking up. Testing, te I mean, I don't know, but it's a slow. Oh, there you are. I think you're better now. Okay, you can hear me better? Okay. Yep. Uh, so what I was saying is that a cognate is only a cognate, you know, a, a, a cognate pair or only cognates within a community of cognates. There's a saying in, in, in South Africa amongst the Zulu, Umuntu ingumuntu ingubantu. A person is a person because of other people. And that's why I use the, the proverb, you know, uh, made famous by John S. Mbiti in his African Religion and Philosophy book, that I am because we are, we are, therefore I am. So without that community of regular sound meaning correspondences, you cannot argue that two words within a language are cognitive. So this is a point that he didn't understand, and which is why he stuck to trying to demonstrate that there is a word black in all of these other languages, which he thinks are cognate with the ones in ancient Kemet. That's irrelevant. Because as I showed at the end, we also got words with the KM consonant sequence, meaning farming country. So again, how do you distinguish between the two? The classifiers. That's why in my equation, I, I made it a point to include the classifiers or determinatives in the in the lay speak in the equation. So the semantic meanings of the words we're comparing has to coincide with the classifiers. Otherwise, you know, we can, you know, like why why there's a word can be meaning grain and plant. Why wouldn't you choose that over black? What makes you distinguish that bird? I mean, that um, word versus as a root for Kim, because it uses the same consonant sequence versus the word full or to pay or, or dorsal fin or any other word. And so they're being selected. This is one of the reasons why I started off the conversation with explaining a particular logical fallacy, and that is begging the question. And this is in part when you assume in one of your premises that it is true, and then you make your argument on one of the premises without first having established that the premise is in fact true. So I can say that um, the forest trees or a tree in the forest has red skittles and since i found a bag an empty bag of skittles on the ground therefore the empty uh bag of skittles came from the uh tree 
that gave birth to Skittle. Now, given that this is something that doesn't happen in ordinary life, that we just go by some trees and then we can shake off some Skittles, I would have to first demonstrate and prove that, in fact, there is a tree in this particular forest that has fruit that are Skittles. And then somehow, even if that is the case, I would still have the burden of showing a causal relationship that the Skittles from the, the tree, if, if we were to say that was true, if the Skittles from the tree actually ended up in the bag that was on the ground, what if there's another process that you can make Skittles and it came from a different source? See, it's a lesson in science and the scientific method because you have hypotheses and then you test hypotheses. You test hypotheses to falsify them. You always operate with three or more hypotheses. And so when you have eliminated all of the hypotheses that are clearly not true, then the only ones that's left is more than likely true. Doesn't mean it's true, it's more than likely. Because you know science, you cannot ever demonstrate that something is true 100% of the time. You would have to have an ongoing experience experiment 24 hours a day seven days a week forever this is why i always make these uh I, in my discussions i always have to slow people down and say that when they be talking about, i have scientific or uh we need scientific proof no you don't proof is an issue of logic in mathematics which is why i dealt with mathematics and logic at the beginning so we can deal with proofs that the conclusion follows from the premises in a logical fashion and can't be any other way. And so I hope I answered your question without going too long. Yeah, yeah, you did. I just I got one more and then I'm gonna shut up. Um so I was looking for uh, the definition of the grammar rule, what it is and how it functions. And I didn't get an answer to that when it was me mentioned to the audience. From me so, or him? No, no, no. From, from him. Okay. From okay. him. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> so can you bring some clarity to that for the audience who got stuck at some of the terms that he was using but didn't understand what he was trying to imply? as he continued to speak over a lot of people's heads. Okay. Um, I want to, but I know that our brother Rujawu had some slides ready. And I know that that's something that he wanted to address. Okay, good, good. Okay, as long as we can clear that up, I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. All right. So since he got slides ready, then, you know, that the people can see exactly what he's talking about. I'll, I'll defer that question to him. Okay. Um, all right, yeah, let me just share something. And um, this is something that we've covered um, a, while, a long while back. And we have some videos uh, where we did it in two parts where we discuss uh, Rani Kemet, Egyptian adjectives. And um, it could get a little confusing. So that's why we decided uh, to do a couple of videos on the subject. So I'm going to just summarize it because I don't want to be too long. We've already spent a, lo a long time on, on this topic. 
Uh, but hopefully everybody can follow what I'm saying. I'm trying to make it as simple as possible about adjectives, their uh, role, and how they function in the language. Uh, because it was emphasized today um, uh, very much so. All right. So I'm just going to read a little bit. So um, this is actually coming out of upcoming uh, grammar book that will be published um, by the beginning of the next year. <laughs> uh, if uh, everything is, is according to plan. So anyway, adjectives. Adjectives are a syntactic category of words used to modify, describe, or qualify a noun, a noun phrase, or a pronoun, giving more information about the referent. Accordingly, adjectives indicate such things as size, measurement, tall or long, feelings or qualities, lonely, honest, nationality or origin, Kenyan, American, characteristics, flashy, sharp, age, young, old, properties, wooden, cotton, shape, round, square, judgment or value, awesome, pointless, condition, rugged, volatile, color, green, blue, or weight, heavy, light. So here's some uh, Egyptian examples, uh, Ronnie Kimmett examples. We have uh, nefer, good, which is a value. We have uh, desher, red, color. We have, uh, oh, have both sides of, of this. So value, we have nefer, good, ben, bad. Desher, red, kem as a color, black, color. Uh, shafu, swollen. And we have wasak, wide, in regards to shape. In regards to weight, we have dines, heavy, isi, light, size, najes, small, ah, big. Uh, for condition, we have naket, strong, and khesi, weak. So those are just some examples. To continue, Rodney Kimmett adjectives may be divided into two main categories, qualifying adjectives and relational adjectives. And these relational adjectives are also called nisbi or nisba. Uh, some people may be familiar with that term. It, it comes from the Arabic word, which means relation, all right? That's used in Arabic grammar, and scholars and linguists will use that term for the general designation of words that, that show a relationship. So relational adjectives are sometimes called nisbis, all right? So the first, remember, two categories. So the first category, qualifying adjectives, I'm going to briefly just uh, describe these. A qualifying adjective is an adjective that denotes either a property or a property and an entity at the same time. Now, see, this is very important to understand that it denotes a property alone or a property and the entity at the same time. And this is going to help people understand how and why they can uh, function in, as nouns. One of the most common qualifying adjectives is nefer. And when denoting just a property, it means good, beautiful. But when denoting a property and an entity together, it means good one, beautiful one. See, we, in English, we have to add one on there as in terms of an object, you know, or something that is of that property. So it's, it's denoting a property and the entity or the referent as well at the same time. Okay. Qualifying adjectives that refer only to a property are used as predicates, also referred to as predicative adjectives in adjectival sentences. In this use, they are invariable. That is, they exhibit no declensional endings for gender or number except the simple form of masculine singular. So what that's saying is that 
when adjectives are used only for properties and not the property and entity, they're in the predicate of the sentence or the clause. And they take the, the form of a masculine singular. They, they don't, they're not varied uh, in terms of number and gender. And anyone um, coming in, if you can unmute your mic. All right, so uh, that's important. So that's what that that's what that that's saying. Invariable meaning they they don't change. All right, they're in the form of a masculine singular. Adjectival sentences will be taken up later in the lesson. Like I said, this is an excerpt from the upcoming book, so that part will uh, adj adjectival sentences are later on in this particular lesson. So, but here's an example of one, uh, nevertheless. So we have nefer heret ten, which means this flower is beautiful. Notice that the word beautiful here is in the predicate of this sentence. But in Rodney Kemet, the predicate in this instance comes first. Nefer is first, and it's masculine singular. Even though what it's referring to or modifying or qualifying is a feminine word, flower, heret. The adjective comes before it, and it's invariable, masculine singular. Referring to this noun, but it's feminine, all right. But it's just an example, all right. So, this is only talking about the quality or the property alone, all right. Now, as I note, note in the example, the noun heret flower is feminine singular, while the pre uh, predicate adjective or predicative adjective nefer is masculine singular, all right. Just to emphasize, qualifying adjectives that, that refer to a property and an entity are variable. That is, they have the same declensional endings as substantives. Now, mind you, substantives is what we call nouns. So these types of adjectives are the ones that behave and uh, go through changes just like nouns. And we call those changes declension. Declensional endings of these nouns for gender and number. The gender and number endings refer to the entity denoted by the adjective. So here's the paradigm for um, adjective nefer. So masculine singular, we have nefer. Masculine, I'm scared, excuse me, uh, feminine singular, we have neferet. Dual, neferwi for masculine. Feminine is neferti. Plural, neferu for masculine. And neferut, or some people may pronounce it neferwet for the plural feminine. These endings are the exact same endings that nouns can take and be marked for the same singular, dual, and plural. All right? So here's a visual of the two types of adjectives. We have um, adjectives that denote a property only and a property entity. So the ones that denote a property only, they're invariable. They don't go through this declensional shift. They exhibit no declensional endings. And we have ones that denote a property and an entity at the same time, and those are variable, and they exhibit declensional endings. Therefore, they look and behave as like nouns. Qualifying adjectives that denote a property and an entity may be used independently or dependently. That's important to know. When used independently, they function as substantives, which is, like I said, this is a word for nouns. And there's a reason why in, when, you, when you study linguistics, you may shift 
from using the word noun to substantive um and i'm and i'm going to explain that in one second so that is substantive adjectives all right in fact in the grammatical tradition of greek and latin from which many of these dis descriptive linguistic terms originate adjectives were considered one of the subtypes of nouns along with substantives being the other they were referred to in latin as nomen adjectivum which which means noun adjectives the word nomen means noun adjectives is what we take as ad, excuse me adjectivum is what we take as adjective so nomen adjectivum and nomen substantivum noun substantives and noun adjectives so remember in early gramma, uh, grammarians they had nomens of two types adjectivum nomens and then we have substantivum nomens all right in english we just took the word nomen and we call it noun so our substantives became the word noun and then adjectivum became our word adjectives an example of a qualifying adjective used independently is neferet beautiful one we have to add the one on there where nefer refers to the property of beautiful and the suffix or ending refers to a singular feminine entity which we denote as one in the phrase beautiful one we are not informed on whether the singular feminine entity is human or an animal or a thing etc determinatives usually assist with informing us of this as in these examples in the masculine we have the word wab which is pure one and without no without a determinative we don't know what is pure one we just know an entity is pure but the determinative in this case helps us to determine what is being spoken about or referring so we have pure human neferet beautiful one and then you have a, a determinative uh, classifier of a bovine bovine uh, animal to know what is being referred now when that was independently when used dependently they are often referred to as attributive adjectives and have the following characteristics one they are placed after the noun or substantive to which they refer forming as a subst substantive phrase which is explained later um, as this is an excerpt again two they agree with the substantive in gender and number and here's some examples we have set weret, which is great seat the noun is feminine we have set and then we have weret. this adjective is agreeing with the noun and gender and number this is a feminine singular therefore the adjective is feminine and singular great seat we have nature ah nature is masculine singular ah is therefore also masculine and singular as an adjective all right they may also have abbreviated endings reduced to a minimum thus in the feminine plural the ending wet which will be a feminine plural will often be reduced to just t alone appearing as a feminine singular and here's an example we have wawet neferut beautiful roads all right where the where the w is suppressed in the glyphs we don't see the quail chick we don't see uh any indication that the w is existing this, in in transliterations we put it inside of parentheses all right so um 
not to be too long-winded i'll 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 stop there let me make sure because i want to make sure that 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 is clear so that's enough to to explain why and how adjectives uh function as nouns but now we have to make something else very clear that words and just as the brother sarah uh said about cognates cognates do not live on an island by themselves they have to live in a community of other uh a family or paradigm of other cognates all right likewise words in the numbers of themselves when we talk about verbs nouns adjectives prepositions adverbs all those things that we were taught are parts of speech those words don't exist in and of themselves for example the word chair c-h-a-i-r chair if i just say chair alone and give you that word chair and ask you what part of speech it is it most people will say it's a noun but the word chair can also be a verb if i use it in a sentence say uh, and say that she chaired the meeting i put the ed on there to make it past tense which is which is a suffix that are used on verbs so chair could be a verb or chair could be a noun so words alone by themselves uh you you cannot you can't tell what part of speech they are we call them word classes and these are syntactic classes and what has to be what has to be understood is that in order to determine the syntactic category of a word you have to look at the morphological behavior of the word you have to also look at the syntactic structure and its distribution in a sentence those three factors is what enables us to know what category words are in so when somebody says that all adjectives can be nouns that has little to no value because the question is is a particular instance of the use of the word a noun or an adjective not so much the fact that all adjectives can be nouns all right so that has to be uh stressed out stressed and 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 made um uh, very clear that is the use and so in today's uh lectures when you look at the examples that were given for the word kemet in terms of the toponym it was not used syntactically and it was not distributed among the environment of other words that it was in as an adjective it was used as a toponym a place name so that has to be very very made uh, uh very clear all right so unless somebody else has another question I, i'll just uh in there and hopefully that was uh, clear but sean i guess you can uh, let me know if that was clear or not in other words it doesn't mean a, a damn thing it's irrelevant because the first thing that you have to uh discover first is what is the root once you can confirm what the root is you can decide whether it's a noun or an adjective or a verb you know the the meaning the root does not have to be any of those categories it just happens to be but you have to demonstrate that you can understand and prove what the root is and then go from there yeah and and those and and that's what see that's what people have to understand the lexical uh categories 
apart from the grammatical categories and then you have syntactic categories and those are only determined by the environment that it's used in we have a lot of roots that give way to different um use of words that are in multiple categories as i just explained chair the word chair can be a verb or a noun uh and you have a lot of a lot of um of words that that um come out that way and you won't know so you know it's 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 important to know uh the difference but at, at the same time if you if you're not unsure about the meaning of the the root then you didn't then you're assuming that the root means one thing and then running with it but sean was that clear he wants to share his screen to, to show you you was clear you was clear um i just know some people were scratching their head at what he was saying because uh he he didn't he didn't actually define what he was saying he just went directly into what he was saying as to appease i believe uh whoever's going to be reviewing uh his work or whatever he was more so caught up in appeasing than actually breaking it down okay but but I, I was asking if you wanted me to share my screen so people know what you mean when you say root oh you could do that that's fine but let me make this clear too that that see w when you say that um all adjectives can be a noun see what makes an adjective an adjective and a noun a noun remember adjectives and nouns are syntactic categories so a word is not one of those things in and of itself. So in other words, you can't have an adjective functioning as a noun and still be an adjective all at the same time. Like I can't say sit in the chair and that chair be a verb and a noun at the same time. Now the word can be one or the other. But in the practical use, this is where semantics and pragmatics comes into play uh, in, within all of this as well. When you use it, when you do your syntactic analysis, you're taking something that is used. You're, 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 you're taking input from something that exists. So the sentences exist. So if I, if I say, um, Asar, uh, please have a seat in that chair over there. Chair in that instance is a noun because of the environment and the distribution of, of, of the word. And we, and we, we would have distribution tests to, to verify these things. But if I say Asar chaired last night's meeting on historical comparative linguistics, now I'm using chair as a verb. And so we have to, we have to make sure that we understand this, that words are not these, any syntactic categories in and of themselves. That's why in dictionaries, in dictionaries, you'll notice that you have one word and then they'll have a noun and they may show it be a verb and they may show it, it can also function as an adjective. Knowing that it can possibly function that way is really meaningless in, in and of itself. It, it's, it's irrelevant and it has no value because I can say the same thing about all the hieroglyphs. All of the hieroglyphs can potentially be logograms phonograms ideograms or classifiers semantics or determiners but the question is is it used that way in any particular instance and so i think that 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 is something that needs to be stressed uh more 
See, another thing uh, that has to be considered and what people uh, are, are failing to realize is that <laughs> the ancient Egyptian language and culture is only partially understood. There's still a lot of mystery in a lot of areas concerning ancient Egypt. It's one of the reasons why we keep studying it. And so you don't see these large excavations about Europe or Ifa or anything to that nature. Why? Because we could just go over there and ask somebody. They'll tell you exactly what it means, or they won't tell you exactly what it means. Either way it goes, you have access to the people and they're still living the culture. That is not the case when it comes to ancient Kemet. So understanding that there's a lot of mystery and a lot of unsolved issues going on, this is where the debates come in. Because you can't go to an Egyptian and ask them what does it mean in their language because they don't speak this language or a modern version of it. They don't read hieroglyphs like that. Their culture is gone. And so when it comes to this place, like why would you name this Kemet? Why? What's What does that mean? We can't go ask them. But they left us clues. And so unlike a lot of people who think that the Seshmetanecher is, in fact, some mysterious, divine script that's going to open up all your chakras and allow you to float into a bank and get a loan. That's not going to happen. It's just a language. It's just a language like any other language. And we only have access to it via the script which is not perfect. Um, well, perfect in the sense that us in modern times have the wherewithal to understand it fully. And so as mentioned a thousand times in these chats and things, the hieroglyphic script does not record its vowels in a obvious way. If, you know, so it can be debated that some vowels are there but it is not obvious to, the, to us if there is. So when we look at words, all we see is their continental skeletons. And given the limited vocabulary and phonological ability to express these words, we're bound to find numerous homographs and I have to say homographs so he our, our good brother Netanyahu um, appears to not understand the difference between a homonym and a homograph and so to argue that something is a homonym we would have to have access to the vowels to see if in fact these two or more words are pronounced the same all we know is, given the list, for example, that I gave, that there is um, a, a list of words that share the same consonant cluster. And so I'm going to share my screen for those who, who uh, are watching live. 
so you can understand um, exactly what I mean. slide so hopefully y'all see everything so this is the example that i gave and this one and i actually give two of such examples so i use collagen and i use chiluba with the km consonant sequence and so if we see here that these are clearly not the same words and some of these you know words are or have roots that are m with k plus vowel prefixes, like this kimoi, you know, um, and kiyam, I think, to be dry. But if we strip the vowels, all we are left with is the consonants. So this is what we see in ancient Kemet. So how do I distinguish um, Kemet or Kemet to be strong versus Kimaita, the late, the deceased. They had the same consonant sequence. Or this Kim darkness versus this Kim to die. What about uh, Kamit, his, her, its mother? How do I distinguish this as a consonant sequence from the late, the deceased, or find power or become strong. And so, again, we have I can I can call up some folks who speak collagen if I'm confused, but I can't do that with an ancient Egyptian. So, the ancient Egyptians they left for us classifiers. These terminating glyphs that give us context in which class certain nouns and verbs belong to. Well, mainly for now, for, for how should I say, uh, for nouns, you know, uh, is properly for classifiers is a term. Uh, for verbs, they still use classifiers. Uh, but we normally, you know, in spoken languages do not speak of verbal classifiers. You know, unless, for example, the verb derives from a noun. Uh, so, for example, in the Monday language, they have plural verbs. So, plural, you know, we we know historically that those verbs derive from nouns. But it's it's the in ancient Kemet, the nouns primarily derive from verbs, and so they go through a process of affixation. They add a prefix or a suffix to nominalize verbs. And then they'll re-put a verbal suffix or prefix to re-verbalize it. And then if they have to re-noun it, they'll add another nominal suffix or prefix, as I, as I showed. So we can see here, you know, I use a different program for this. I just copied this from the TLA online. This I used for JFest. So they look kind of different, but they're the same. Uh, we can see same hieroglyphs. Same hieroglyphs as the root. Same hieroglyphs. Same hieroglyphs. Same hieroglyphs. Same hieroglyphs. All using the I six glyph in the front, and then either the phonetic complement and or you know and, and added morphine. So if we was just to not have any of this, we could not tell the difference of, about these words. 
But, you know, uh, but what I demonstrate in the upcoming book is that in many ways you can. See, the problem is we don't really understand the grammar and the word formations 100%. And because we don't, we don't recognize that the, the how should I say, the grammatical, excuse me, the classifiers agree with the affixes. They belong, the affixes is just in the word itself, and then they visualize often the the affixes in the ver in the in the actual classifiers. And so uh, so you know uh, not trying to get too deep. Um, so I hope that helps uh, in, in understanding the crux of the issue that we have here. So I can't distinguish so if there is a Kemet you know, I got to account for every single morphine. See, in linguistics, we got to account for everything. We just can't say, you know, this is a root because we don't know if this is Kim is a root. In this instance, K could be a prefix and MN could be a root for, you know, uh, this here. And I don't really know how to transcribe this because, you know, my German isn't the best. And so this says, you know, an inscribed person or a scribal person, you know, I don't know what this uh, this, this variant uh, uh, means here. But like here with Kimiet, a book of wisdom. You know, it's not a black book. Like we automatically assume that the book is black. So what part of the, the word is for book and then what other part is for black? So is the why, is this a, is a how should I say, is this a compound noun or, uh, you know, say a noun phrase? And if it's a black book, why doesn't it agree with the um, the rules of the language? So since normally the adjective follows the noun, you know, why isn't this you can't if the why, for example, is the book? You know, these are the kinds of questions that you have to ask. And so that you can, you know, have a proof. We have a process called proof by contradiction. So if, if you can show a contradiction, it proves, you know, you, you can make a proof by contradiction showing that, you know, it is, it is logically implausible to go along this track of thinking because we'll, we'll contradict ourselves in this domain. So, uh, yeah. so you know, as I showed here, lastly, you know, like I can give these two words. You see, they had the same glyphs. But I wouldn't be able to distinguish. There's no way, there's no vowels for me to distinguish these two words, which I'm pretty sure in the language, they, these were written with different vowels. And so as a written script, people confuse this with the, with the vocalness. This is a writing script. We're not hearing anything. So that's why we have these determinatives at the end to distinguish between uh, homographs which may or may not be homonyms. So I'll stop there. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I think um, that was really good. And, and it speaks to the final question that you asked um, during the, the previous show, which I think was um, very crucial, which was, um, you know, um, if and if um, if Neb, Neb could actually show any um, glyphs that hide out the, for the word Kemet, 
um, that had um, the hair glyph or the N35. And um, pretty much it was a long answer to just say no. And uh, I think that's, you know, and that's why you, you, for anybody who understands, you know, what um, I started just uh, presented here, you, you actually know why um, that uh, second part of the presentation was just, um, you know, it, it just digressed and didn't really um, go through the issue or, and didn't really speak much to why Kemet means black people. Um, I, I want to point out something, too, because something was mentioned earlier that about determinatives and their and their presence inside of the script that it is uh, true that that uh, there are instances where determinatives are omitted on certain syntactic category of of words prepositions usually do not have determinatives um, certain types of, of words uh, Asar pointed out the fact that pronouns uh, do not exhibit determinatives like you're not going to see us um a pronominal suffix with determinatives um attached to them and whatnot so the language does not have determinatives every word does not um show forth a determinative they're usually used on substantives to to uh indicate uh the semantic scope of the word that's what we call them classifiers etc um i wanted to share something real quick to kind of emphasize something that Asar brought up uh, today, and I think just now. Um, hopefully you all can see my screen. This, this is an example of, of uh, morphological and versus morphemic analysis and why it's important to make to understand the distinction and how they can work together because this same uh, aspect is used in making the determinant, determination about even with this word Kemet. Okay, so the example I give is for English examples. So I have two words, uh, four words, or, or are they four words? But anyway, uh, we have small, smaller, teach, and teacher. So now, just briefly, uh, a morph is the realized, concrete realized realization of a morpheme. So morphs is what you actually see or hear when, when people speak or when we write. Um, we write words out and we actually represent the morphs. That's what you see. That's the concrete surface realization. The morpheme is the underlying uh, abstraction. Okay. And so I'll, you know, it'll be clear in a second. So let's, let's take the word smaller and teacher. I'm going to ignore small and teach for example, for, for now, smaller and teacher. So the morphs of the word smaller, hold up. Let's see if I could turn my cursor on. Okay, the morph, the morphs for the word smaller and teacher, they share, they both have two morphs, small and the ER suffix, teach and the ER suffix. Now the question, now on the surface, you can't tell if this ER in teacher and this ER in smaller is the exact same ER. It looks the same because that's what we see on the surface. That's the morph. That's the uh, surface realization. They're, they're uh, spelled identical and they're pronounced identically, all right? These will be homonyms and homographs <laughs> uh, as far as the spelling, all right? Now, the question is, are they the same, though? And the answer is no. When we go under the hood, beneath, in the, in the underlying abstraction, we know that the morphemes of small consist of the root, lexeme, small. And then this ER is really a comparative morpheme. You have small, smaller, and smallest. 
So this is a comparative morpheme, morpheme of, of call it comparative. This ERN teacher is a morpheme of agency. They call it a agentive morpheme. One who does this. So teach is a verb. Alexime, um, teach is a verb. And then we have the ER, which is turns into an agent. One who does that. One who teaches. And we say teacher. So this ER and this ER, although looking alike, sounding alike, spelled alike, they're not alike. They're completely different morphemes. So I so now this is on a morph morph morpheme level uh, where we where we uh, you know call it the atom you know the um, the atoms of words, but the discussion today wasn't dealing so much with the makeup of the word itself, but more so the the word the whole word. And so the same the same process will have to be done. You can't make an assumption. See, I can make an assumption, or I would be in error to make an assumption just because this looks alike and sounds alike to assume that both of these are the same and then go in other languages, other Indo-European languages, I'm dealing with English, and then just start pulling out things and say, see, it's there too. See, it's there too. Without first establishing the um, evidence for, for my premise in the first place to avoid the logical fallacy that uh, Asar Motep brought up as beg begging the question. So this is what would have to be done on the internal structure of words. So I just want to show an example of the importance of it and how you can trip yourself up and and um and mess up and that, that's what's going on a lot of times with um egyptian language and particularly with this word kemet there's an assumption that the kim in kemet is black is the word black and not the word for a um a, a body that's accessible to water etc 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 and that's the key Was that understood? Cause yeah, that, yeah, that great breakdown. Great breakdown. That's what Brother Ned and Ned was missing in this presentation. That was a great demonstration for the layman that um might not be uh, familiar with this. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm trying. I don't want to uh, be over anybody's head, so hopefully this this is understood. I can I can use the word player. Uh, play is a verb, is an action. You know, something that that you know you can see action and play your uh, that er would fall as the same ER. That ER, if I, to, if I were to add player here, that ER is the exact same ER in teacher. All right, so hopefully hopefully everyone uh, gets that. And on top of that, uh, let me just do that real quick. I just wanna show you, show you how people gotta be careful. Uh, we have play. And, uh, and we had the word roll, roller is uh, one or, or something that rolls, roller. So we have these agent uh, morphemes called an agentive. So, and then difference would be the comparative ones that we have smaller. So we could think of a whole host of words to, to you know, uh, show more and more and more examples, but hopefully people will get the gist of it. Why is it important that just because something look alike, sound alike, even spelled alike, um, that it's not the same? Uh, what should that, uh, Ujau, son Ujau? To you. Um, so when you're looking at these words, 
if I'm getting this right, the the actual syntax or the vocabulary word, uh, those words you have to identify first because like in the words uh, small or versus the word teach, um, if you don't know what the what it, what the actual word was was used as, because it had, could have many different variations. Uh, when you add an ending on there, uh, if you don't know what the actual syntactic, I guess I'm I'm saying this right, syntactic um, meaning of the uh, morpheme, then you would have problems with the uh, when you add something to it um okay put it this way remember let me let me just show this again okay remember earlier i said that words don't exist on islands of themselves ex you know period and especially when it comes to making a determination of their syntactic class their syntactic category that we call word classes or parts of speech okay a noun verb adjective pronoun so on and so forth they have to fit other criteria for us to make that conclusion all right so there's different tests that you can do to make that determination but remember i said one of the tests or one of the the things you look for is its morphological behavior which means the shapes that it, the different shapes it can take and different uh asphyxiations that it can take and its syntactic structure so for example since we're dealing i'm showing this as far as more, more uh morphological um let's just say uh um what's a good example um okay let's let's do go on the syntax level verbs do not take or receive articles like um if i say what's the what's a, a verb uh let's say play uh once i put an article which is the word the or a in english or an um once i put an article in front of that word play it cannot be a verb if i say the play the play the play you know is a noun because only a noun can receive a, an article and so these are rules these are distributive rules for us to determine the um the syntactic category of a word based on its position or syntactic distribution okay so that's an example uh so verbs don't don't have articles in front of them you can't say the teach that makes no sense in english that would be against english doesn't make any sense ungrammatical okay so that's on a syntactic level but also on a more morphological level which is within the words internal structure of words where you're dealing with affixes and so on um like for example uh possession if i say um uh apostrophe s you're not going to put an apostrophe s on verbs and it still be a verb you understand so certain certain syntactic categories behave morphologically a certain way and certain syntactic categories uh, are distributed a certain way within the sentence so again you have morphological behavior is is a criteria to look at and a syntactic distribution both of those together 
are what we use to determine uh, the class of, of particular words. You can't you can't use one or the other and so on and so forth or miss one because you you open yourself up for making mistakes. So hopefully that was hopefully that cleared up. Uh, do I now on, on I understand that on the English side of uh, of of that, but on the uh, Ronnie Kimmich side, do you have do they? I, maybe I'm not there yet, but do they use articles? Because the and and a are not something that's something that we add, uh, but it's not it's not actually there. Okay, in that particular case, uh, the word the um, came out of, you have pa and ta. Pa would be the masculine form of an, oh, artic okay. of an article. We have ta oh, this, as... This, that, these, those, and sometimes it, it can be used as an article, the. Right, we have pa and ta. Pa is oh. masculine, ta is feminine, but they came out, they came later in, in, in uh, later Egyptian, though. And when you get to old and middle Egyptian, they didn't have the pa and ta used that way. They used they were relied more heavily on demonstratives. So you have pu uh, being used, and ten. You have pen and ten, and and if you notice, uh, this is something that I'll go over uh, for a whole another discussion. You'll notice that the paradigm is the same. You have uh, pen and ten with the t p and t and the n. Then you have pa and ta, and then you'll end up with the um, uh, uh, one being a demonstrative and then one being an article, and that's where they come. That's where they come from. A demonstrative and an article both point out a thing. It demarcates a thing from another thing, and and but that's another conversation. Okay, to you. I would, I would like to add, however, that there is evidence in the old kingdom of the, the definite article. Um, it is rare. But to me, this is circumstantial evidence, again, of two different languages existing at minimum in the Nile Valley. And so you get these clues that there's these other languages that exist side by side, beside the old kingdom, middle kingdom. And then later on, they just appear as part of the, the grammar in the new kingdom, which lets me know that more than likely, a a new group or an old group of people took over and their language became the uh the dominant language of the time and so like the the example i like to use is of course with english see what most people don't know we was to go our natural track with as far as the language that was came out of the british isles we would be speaking celtic but a lot of French speakers uh, took over the the Anglais island, and this is how a lot of French came into you know the language, and so there was a shaping there. Then later on, you had these nomadic Germanic tribes who was going around conquering, and then they conquered the the English island. Or the British Islands, say. And then, so because that was the dominant, what we call English, it is it is that structure from Germanic. But all the the vast majority of the people are not 
Germanic speakers natively, if that makes sense. You know, the, the people themselves come from a descent of the Celtic speakers. But, you know, they weren't as technologically advanced as, uh, at least in warfare, as the, the Germanic speakers. And so, where at one time the prestige language was French, then it became this German language. And so this is why, like, when you look at grammar books and things of this nature on English, especially like dictionaries, you'll find that damn near 70% of our words are foreign loan words into quote-unquote English. We retain very few words from the actual Germanic group. And there are even some... Um, grammatical features that were borrowed. So like when you talk about a prefix, the word pre itself is a borrowing. There's a whole bunch of grammar that we have in English that is borrowed. And so when you when you look at uh, ancient Egyptian carefully, and, and here's the point I'm getting to ultimately, is that you know, for someone who is a researcher that is that is trying to solve this mystery of ancient Kemet, you can't make too many assumptions. Because when you make these assumptions without trying to prove them, you will miss information. Certain clues are sticking out at you, but you can't see it because you already have a preconceived notion of how it's supposed to be, how you think it's supposed to be. And so, you know, uh, I always like, I don't know if y'all ever see those memes. It's, it's, they always ask, is it murder or suicide? Or something like that. It's, it's, they call it murder puzzles. And I know that seems kind of a, 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 a morbid, but it's intellectual for me because it forces you to look at other pieces of evidence to reconstruct a scene, a crime scene. I think everyone should learn. Just take some time to study, take a summer at least, just to study forensics. Matter of fact, there's a field of linguistics called forensic linguistics. And I'm working to integrate that in my teaching of linguistics especially when it comes to ancient Kemet. So you can use those tools to better answer certain questions. But the point of bringing up the, the thing is that, for example, if, if you know, Emmy uh, Cat walked into my house just randomly and saw me over Brother Rajawu, who is dead on the ground and I'm holding the knife and I got blood on my uh, hands and, and uh, on my shirt. So Emmy Cat, I'm just singling you out. That's just the name I see. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> so uh, did I commit the murder? Um, I don't know. Your first instinct was, well, hell, 
he's sitting right over Ujawa with the knife. The blood is still dripping. But as a see that as a lay person, you know, like let's say uh you know Ujawa was Emmy Cat's brother. Now, of course, there's an emotional attachment to Ujawa, and you know, that's family. So of course, seeing her brother dead on the ground would would immediately, you know, uh charge certain types of emotions and 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 blame there. But if I am a detective who has been called in to investigate the scene, I can't take what looks on the surface as facts. I have to go through the steps and processes of reconstructing the scene because now I got to look at blood spatter. I got to look at this person's alibi. You know, like I could have came in the house and seen Wujawu on the floor already stabbed. And I could have went over trying to see and pat him to see if he's still alive, which is how the blood transferred on my clothes. And I saw the knife and picked it up like, what happened? And then here comes Emmy Cat walking in the door. I just look guilty, but I'm not guilty. And so when you are a researcher, when you are an investigator, when you are a scholar, you, you are obligated to no matter how obvious something appears, to always work the problems out. Because it's only by doing that that you're able to solve the mysteries. And the reason why we keep getting into these circular arguments on the Kimmet is because nobody wants to do the work. They think they know when they don't. They haven't gone through any steps to prove their premises. And so this is why, you know, uh, I had to take that time at the beginning of the discussion to go through all of that and to mention those things and then show you step by step the process uh, of, of how we can solve this mystery. What questions we have to ask, what what line of questioning and proofs would allow for us to get to the answer, what must be present. What is absent? And why is it absent if it's absent? What is, you know, these are the things you don't take anything for granted. And that's the only point that uh, I wanted to stress. Yeah, that's, um, that's it. And I hope uh, people who are watching on the, on the chat are following along. Um, yeah, but, uh, and and uh you know I I had said I was gonna open it up but I, I want to make sure that everyone who's in here, um if you had any comments any any other comments or any other questions, um to please uh, bring it up. And also in the meantime I just wanted to um, emphasize something else that was mentioned today. Um, one was emphasized many times that all adjectives can be nouns. Well I just I just explained why that is because even in um. Like I said, even in early grammar, uh, nouns was of two types, adjectivum and sub substantivum. And so we just chose, instead of saying substantives, we say nouns. <laughs> and then we say adjectives for the adjectivums. Um, but they behave the same. They, they, take, they uh, are um, 
inflected the same. And we call the inflection of nouns and adjectives, we call that declension. All right. So that's what I explained earlier. But also what was mentioned today was um, verbs or adjectives, you know, um, or verbs being, you know, being descriptive. And we understand those to be participles. If anyone knows about participles, participles are, are um, adjectival forms of verbs. And it's very important to understand, you know, how things are described, especially in linguistics, when you want to start to drill down and be more precise and scientific with, with it. Um, adjectival or nominal or adverbial um, is describing a syntactic feature. Something being used in a syntactic environment as an adverb would be adverbial. Something being used syntactically as a, in, a, in a noun or a substantive uh, situation would be substan substantival or nominal, as most people will say. Uh, then you have adjectival and so on and verbial. Okay, so so those words, when you hit, see that eel, <laughs> nominal, adjectival and all that, they, they're uh, basically describing it more on the level of syntax, not on the level of morphine, morpho, uh, morphology. All right. And morphology and syntax, both of those are two legs of grammar. And and languages have a nice blend of those two. Certain languages lean more in one direction or, or another, but but languages have a blend of those two. So those two work hand in hand and they represent levels. Mor morphology deals with the level of word and below. And syntax deals with the level of word and above. So words, phrases, and sentences and clauses for syntax. And then the word, whether it's roots, stems, bases, the affixes, infixes, fixes, the whole nine is what morphology deals with. All right. The atoms of words, basically. Okay. So I just wanted to. In other uh, words, everyone should have been paying attention in high school. <laughs> in class. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of times they don't they don't teach you this in in uh you know well they teach you roots and uh maybe affixes and stuff like that but uh nothing in in depth but uh son david just real quick though let me um i just wanted i wanted to uh give you another example of how to identify syntactic categories of words and so i mentioned nouns so i i, I gave you an example of of a morph morphological level and then a syntactic level but just a gist, just to run down, because this is this is also in the book, um, and I haven't had a chance to go over it with you all. But um, just let's take for nouns. Here, here's here's how here's how you check for the syntactic category of a noun, regardless of the word. Um, now traditionally, we're we're told nouns are persons, places, and things, or ideas and stuff like that. Now distributively, uh, nouns are modified by adjectives. Uh, nouns follow determiners or articles, which which are a class of determiners. So we have the, a, this, that, and so on and so forth. Okay, uh, nouns can be singular or plural. In English and in other languages, it could also be dual. Uh, and nouns cannot take an object. So so that that list of things I just said would be a syntactic distribution test. A noun can't take an object. Prepositions can take an object. And the object of a preposition is usually a noun or a noun phrase. You know, on the table. 
you know, the table being the noun phrase, table being the noun, the being the article, those together being the noun phrase, and all that is the object of the preposition on. And so what I'm what I'm what I the what I'm just saying is that these are syntactic analyses. These these, these are uh, based on distribution of the words. And this is how you determine the class of the word. And you have to go through this in order to make that determination. All right, so verbs, so, so real quickly, verbs uh, verbs are traditionally told, told to us to be action words, you know, sometimes a state, you know, action or a state of being. Uh, now, syntactically, uh, verbs can combine with auxiliary words or verbs. Can, will, um, can play, will play, will teach, can teach, might teach. Those are auxiliary verbs. Uh, verbs agree with the subject. So you say, uh, um, I teach, but he teaches. See, I, I had to, I had to conjugate the verb. I had to add the es on the on there when I talk about a third person. He, he teaches, whereas I say I teach. Okay, um, verbs can take tense aspects, uh, uh, fixes that deal with that, and verbs can take an object. Okay, so so I just show those two. I'm not going to be long winded, but but I I can show you examples for adjectives for every every quote unquote part of speech or word class, and I can show you examples of these distribution tests that we uh, go through to solidify or confirm uh, the category of a word, how it's used, not when it exists all by itself. Sorry to interrupt you, uh, but it looks like you just have me it on my screen, so I couldn't see anything that you were saying. Oh, okay. No, I, I actually wasn't. I wasn't sharing my screen. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was, I was actually looking for it. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I was. <laughs> no, no. I, I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't sharing. I was just. I was just uh, saying it. So, so hopefully that that's understood. I, I, I should have shown it because it's it's a part of the um, uh, within the grammar. To you. Okay, but yeah. So. This, yeah. Huh. Um, does somebody else have a question before I go? Because I wanted to make a point clear, and I want to show y'all something that he he didn't understand. But go ahead if, if someone has a question. Uh, bef uh, I don't think I don't think anybody has one. But before you go, so uh, uh what do y'all feel about uh um share the link? See if anybody else wanted to uh, come in. Now that we kind of after you, have, after you get, I have one more one more question that for uh, uh son uh Os Osar, uh. In your presentation earlier today, uh, when you were talking about Kemet, I saw uh, one of your uh, glyphs, and it used the um, the I six glyph, and then it, on top of that was the X one glyph, and uh, was that graphic transposition? No, um, I would I would have to see because I of course that's a dictionary entry. But I would have to see it in the source, and more than likely, when that happens, that is it's more so for stylistic reasons. So it's probably like in a vertical column somewhere, to you. and they just wanted to be uh, wanted to be neat with it. So um, I don't know of any rule where the the T sound, you know, is, is used as a an honorific transposition. Not 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 honorific graphic. Yeah, again, it's it's it, it it just depends. So sometimes you'll see 
that in the front, but it's it's done for space reasons. And so that's why my hypothesis is that probably on the the primary is probably in a, like a, a, a vertical column or something like that. Teal. So, but you would still you would still read it as Kenneth. Teal. Um, but I'll, I'll just share my screen because this is something that he he doesn't un and he being our, our good brother brother uh, Nedanev, he didn't understand. And and I'm and I'm hoping y'all will understand. I didn't get a chance to explain it. Uh, not this, so I don't know. Let me reduce these windows. I can't see. Okay. So let me know if y'all see everything. Fine. See you. Okay. Uh. <laughs> So, remember what uh, we said, that a cognate is a cognate because of other cognates. That it has to belong to a family of, of terms that have the, the same or similar form. So, when we, what we mean by form is that there is a consistent sequence of phonemes that that correspond in one language to another. So as we can see in this first row, the word for prophet in Sumerian is done. It can it consists of a consonant, a vowel, and a consonant. In Chikam, my word for Egyptian after uh, Dr. Muba being Bilobo, you have the word Kim prophet. But of course, we don't have the vowels, so we don't know if it is uh, a consonant vowel, consonant vowel, or simply co consonant vowel, consonant, like we have in Sumerian. Um, and then in Chiluba, we have Makasa, prophet game. Now, we can see uh, as we grow down some different second consonants in the C2 position. So for every uh phoneme or graphing that we see here uh for each word we we assign it a position of it so the first let's go to the top in the on the left hand side in sumerian so that d that we see is in a consonant one position that u is in a vowel one position is this the first vowel and that n is the in the C2 position, the con the second consonant position. And if there was another vowel following it, it would be um, vowel two or B2. Now we generally ignore the prefixes and suffixes. So as a methodological point, when we're doing linguistics, we have to understand the languages in which we are studying. So we have to be able to demarcate between a prefix and a suffix. And so different languages may have different prefixes and suffixes. And so you don't want to count that in as part of the root that you're comparing. So when we're doing a general word comparison like this, we're comparing the roots. So what we have highlighted in red are roots. 
everything that is not read beforehand, like this G collar for coal, I, I I don't highlight. I don't count that because I'm I'm not examining the the A fixes just yet. I'm just concerned about the roots. So, for example, between the Sumerian and ancient Egyptian and uh, the Chiluba, we notice that in the consonant one position of each one of these is a K that in, in Sumerian is D, in Egyptian is K, and in Chiluba is K. And so I write this over here to show these correspondences. So, so the way that it is ordered here is the way that I have the column set up. So this is for Sumerian, Egyptian, Chiluba, Chiluba Bantu. And so this line that I have after the consonant is to indicate that it's the first consonant. So the C1, so it's at the beginning. So there, so we expect there to have phonemes after it. But you see the ones at the bottom, they have the dash before the consonant. Let you know it's a C2 consonant. It's the last consonant in the word or in the root that more so specifically in the root that we're examining. So, but I don't count the ma or the G over here or the U because these are prefixes on the root. So I can do this and I see that there's certain changes here. But again, when you know the language, you know the conditions of certain things. So this mm in totality in in Kong and Chiluba can um, when it's rounded become M. And also in Chiluba, M and B interchange. And I demonstrated in my text that in the second consonant position, L and M interchange. So in other, this is why we have different tables. So this wouldn't be my only example. I have tons of examples. So you know that all of these sounds in this C2 position are consistent with the exception of this one here. So this is an anomaly. So we would have to explain this at some point, but we still mark it down because the C1 is consistent. And so you see that it changes here in Chiseba because of this front vowel, which palatalizes the K. So this is consistent. Chiseba, animal skin, leather, versus Jikoba, skin. So they're in complementary distribution, as we say. So I, I have demonstrated. So none of these have to deal with the word black. So I'm saying this because remember, he's talking about you didn't deal with the adjectives and you didn't deal with the word black because I don't assume that the word Kemet derives from a root meaning black. So I go here just to set up and establish the sound correspondences so that I can argue that whatever I argue is the cognate in Sumerian that we've taken care of this step. So this is, this is how linguistics is done. And so I further demonstrate, still using the same consonant sequence in Egyptian, but using a different 
consonant sequence here and showing that they still match up. But as I stated in the lecture before, T's and D's in Sumerian interchange. So there was a sound split sometime in, in his history. So it's not a surprise that the T and K in the, uh, in the C1 position between Sumerian and Egyptian match. Because K um, corresponds with D and D interchanges with T, we would expect, we can predict that T in the, uh, the, the C1 position is going to correspond with K in Egypt, uh, Chikan or Egyptian. And so R is an L interchange in Sumeria. So it, we have some R's in the second consonant position in the previous one. And so we have one here, but the, the vast majority here are L's. And no matter what, R and L, and I make sure that I try to have at least five, you know, uh, of these sound correspondences. So you, and, and this is another thing that you got to understand. This doesn't, even though I can show these consistently, this doesn't prove a genetic relationship. This step is only the first step. All it is meant to do is to set up the sound correspondences and to eliminate chance as an explanation for why till to n corresponds with kim to n and inkun to n or n finished in chiluba. It's not a coincidence. What we're saying here is not a coincidence that these correspond because we see all these other examples. So we've eliminated coincidence as a, a, a process. But even if all of these were lone, they could still follow the sound meaning correspondences in loan words. So we have to have another criterion. Netanet doesn't know this. And so I'm, I'm very meticulous in these things. And so after we've established that, now I can go into Sumerian and I ask the question, well, hmm, what word in Sumerian that obeys the sound laws that matches the determinatives of the word Kemet in Egyptian? That's where this word comes in, Kiduru. Because we've already established that D in Sumerian corresponds to Egyptian K and R corresponds to Egyptian M. So here we have a, a, a putative cognate. Like this makes sense given the determinatives. So that's why I said that your equation when you're dealing with Egyptian, that the determinatives are key. The classifiers are key. And so your meanings have to match with the determinatives. So that's why, because we don't know what the meaning of Kim and Kimit is, we have to find out through a related language. And so now we have a word that matches every single aspect of the word Kimit and corresponds and matches with the determinative. So now we can go into ancient Egyptian and say that, okay, now we know what the root is. It means wet, irrigated, damp, fresh, just like uh, over here in Sumerian. Because we've done that work. And every aspect of Kiduru matches with Egyptian, Kemet. 
And so that's when we can look into other languages. Now we can go and we find all these other words. And I didn't even add them on here for the sake of time. Um, so I just gave this one. Oh, in Ganda, village, properly a new pasturage with an abundance of grass and water. And so this is what we see. And so that's why I said that just as you can find Kim Black in, in African languages, you can also find Kim, Kam for farm and country. So when you see Kim um, with the man and woman determinative, this is how you interpret it. Kom, country, region, country, region, nation, country, region. Because the as we read in the actual script, it doesn't refer to people. It, it personifies the country and lets you know that it is a nation, it's an abstract noun. So this is how you interpret it when you see the man and woman seated, the seated man and woman with the three strokes, which is an abstract stroke or uh, abstract um, classifier. And so I get into that in the book. And so um, I hope that aspect was explained. And I just wanted to lastly just touch on this. And so Could as I, we can, I'm sorry. Interrupt you once. Uh, you, you, there was two slides back that you flipped through, and that uh, the the glyph that I was talking about was on. Um, it was. Mm, no, go back forward. One more. One more. This one. No, then. It was another one. It was it was kind of sparsed out. You had it was like a graph. Uh, like this one. Yeah, like that one. Um, no, I don't see it. But it 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 was like this one. But it had like um, the third one, two, three, the fourth one down, where you have the T. The T was slid over. This is a. Uh, at Kemet, at Kemet, the T was slid over on top of the uh, the uh, Kim symbol. It was just one yeah. of the, yeah, it was just one of the ones that you showed during your uh, demonstration. I'll have to look through the, uh, the, the slide again, because I'm pretty sure that if that is the case, it's way back. Okay, to you. Uh, and so, uh, so but what I was saying here is that, that you also have a process called internal comparisons. And so now that I have made the argument that Kemet you know, means a new pasturage with an abundance of grass and water, right? That there should be some dialectical variations that reaffirm this, that also obeys the sound rules that was set up. And so this is where this step comes in because this K, and I, and I showed earlier in the presentation, 
corresponds to the dotted H. Even though these syllables are switched, you can see it's still consistent. So complete, in, pay, total up, amount, etc. To fill, be full, pay in full, make whole, complete. So-called black bull, it should just be bull. Mehi, holy bull. A snake, a black quote-unquote desert snake. And this is something that you'll find in the dictionaries because any time that something is there, they'll just put black. And it could be black, but it could not be black. It just could be a desert snake. You know, um, and because they don't do that with the dialectical variations. This is how you know if they got the, the terms right. Because the dialectical variation should match exactly. And so, as I was saying, there's still being stuff un unveiled in the ancient Egyptian script and language. And so those of us who are scholars of Egyptian, this is the kind of stuff that we're doing to advance the work, to correct the dictionaries. But we have to be able to demonstrate and prove these things in order to change certain um Mis, uh, mispronunciation, not mispronunciation, well, mispronunciations, but misassociations and, and, and words of that nature. So when you see, for example, Kemet, Egypt with the N36 mer determinative, this is what they use for river or flood, and then you have Mehi, flood, water of the Nile, these coincide because this ultimately gives a rise to lower Egypt, so to speak, in the swamps. It would not. They just have different um, suffixes, you know, saying to the root. And it also reinforces the crocodile tail as the actual glyph. Did you ever work for crocodile? You know, all of this isn't coincidence. We've eliminated coincidence as a result of these correspondences. So when you say Mehu or Mehet, Lower Egypt, Lower Kemet, this is, is just Kemet over again. It's just a different dialectical variation. And what I argue is that this is a, the, the version of the word from the language that originates in Lower Kemet. And Kemet is the one from the earlier conquering people who came from the Sudan and united uh, uh, Kemet. And so you're seeing their words enter the lexicon. And it's confusing. But, but once you see this, then you're able to make certain types of distinguishes, distinguish, uh, distinctions and arguments. And so here's all the, not all, because there's even some more, uh, variations of the word Kemet. All based on sound rules, internal uh, of the language itself. So I didn't even have to leave the Egyptian language to demonstrate that Kemet means arable land, wet, or land with a river, uh, a floodable, a riparian zone, uh, a riparian land, and things of this nature. All that is, I can just stay in Kemet by itself. So all the other stuff just reaffirms what I did in the initial uh, stages of Kemet uh, analysis. So I'll end there. Nice, nice. Yeah, does anybody else have any um, questions? I hope this is uh, kind of clear, you know, because a lot was said today, and I'm sure hopefully um, everybody's going to go back and watch the videos, um, what was presented. 
Um, I just know that a lot of emphasis was placed on adjective nouns today. And I just hope everyone's clear on that adjective nouns. Um, and, and what, what was said earlier, um, makes sense that, you know, you have to do a syntactic analysis to determine whether a word is part of a word class or not, how it's used, not by itself. And I, I can't stress that enough. You, you just can't do that. And I got a, I got a question. Uh-huh. Who had more time or saw or net and nail? Oh, I think they had about equal time. I think the moderator did, did an excellent job. Uh, the brother uh, Quadro, I think he did an excellent job at um, uh, making that that discussion happen. And I think he gave equal time. But what I do know though is Osar took the time he took, and when the brother Netter Neb had uh, began, he emphasized that it wouldn't take him as long, and he doesn't need as long or five hours. And uh, just the just the choice of his language used towards Asar what I you know I know there's a couple of things but he ended up taking the the, uh, same amount of time and would have even taken longer had not the moderator um, had interrupted to remind that uh, you know they had equal time so that's but that's you know that's just the formalities of the discussion but yeah that was that was uh, I I say they had about equal time and and that's the thing see you know everybody blames me for being MC Iron Lung but see when you talk Time stops. Time stops existing, and Asar witnessed that today. Netanyahu obviously witnessed it today because you, you know, you, you, they they say, "Oh man, where'd all the time go?" You know, so I'm used to it. See, I, I have I have a talking time machine. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, but but you know, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I gotta find mine now. Oh, no, I was just saying that. Oh. Uh, yeah, that the emphasis was made on how long Asar took, but um, that wasn't really necessary considering the fact that um, Asaya, I think, intentionally took the time to actually prepare the audience, like I said before, um, take time to prepare the audience um, in order to understand what he was about to present. So the first section of his presentation was just on preparing the audience. And I think that was really great that he actually took time and acknowledged the audience and wanted the audience to actually understand everything. So right. I think that was really, really good. Really? And obviously it was going to take time. I appreciate it. Yeah, I understood. Like the, the whole thing was, I ain't going to say it was funny and fishy, but it, it just, it, it just, it, it, it wasn't standard, I should say. So when we talk about doing a, uh, you, you're talking about there's going to be some linguists that reviews the video. Like linguists don't review videos, they review papers. And I'm like, you put all of your data on the page. There's no way in the world I was gonna be able to get through 41 pages that I've written um, on on this subject in the original 45 minute time slot that we were given. It just wasn't happening. I just had like it took me so long because of the introduction, and I was, um, I, I was reading some of my bonus slides. So I had bonus slides. So when I got to Desheret and the Riparian land, that was just extra stuff. So you know, and nobody stopped me. And I'm a former Hebrew Israelite, so we could talk for hours, you know, without without going up for air, getting something to drink, you know. 
but uh but again yeah so i'm i'm it was that's all i cared about was the audience i did not care about changing that in Nev's mind this was a subject that we brought to him four years ago and he was trying to make similar arguments and he didn't understand then and he doesn't understand now and you will it would be a waste of time to go back and forth with him on this subject and he doesn't understand the basics i got a a question um you and in your discussion i'm not saying debate and you're part of the discussion um you clearly made your point to address uh the potential source or sources that he would revert to and respond and his response based on his demonstration he had no other way to address you outside of putting your name in every slide do you feel that um in your argument uh or this for discussion's sake do you feel in, in the first part of that what you put forth was legitimate enough to uh, standard tested based on the methods because you use different methods and examples of methods and you demonstrated those methods. Do you feel like uh, um, you don't have to say any more to pins drop on that discussion with him or do you think that uh, you will have to revisit the discussion again with him in the future? Um, again, I have a, uh, a, as of as of now, it's 41 pages. Of, of a discussion on chemistry. And there's so many points that I brought up and that I couldn't bring up here. So again, this is one of the reasons why I, I started off the way that I did. So, because I know it's gonna be a second before that is released and people are gonna be conversing about this. And so I wanted to give just enough that regardless it would destroy his argument or anyone else's. And so I made it a point to 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 mention that since 1998, at the height of the Martin Bernal debate and discussion, even though the the, the earlier book came out in the 80s, in the late 90s, the the academics were debating hard. This is how I got involved. This is how I met Brother Bernacci, if you're familiar with him, uh, Meta Nature teacher. This is how I got familiar with. Brother Manu and Pim. This is how I got familiar with uh, what's his name, Doctor David. Uh, what's that uh, brother's name out of California? The elder uh, uh, scholar of Metanetra, Brother Bujawi. Do you remember him? Um, um is it David? It's not David. Come on, Raymond Davis. Raymond Davis. Um, Clyde Winters. Uh, who else? You know, yo, yet some people at the uh, Oriental Institute. Like when we was initially going over this debate, the first thing that we did was translate text to see the context of this. And so, even in then, I still had the mindset that the word Kemet meant black. I was just trying to find the application for it that made sense given the primary text. And so the only point that I'm bringing this up is that I've been doing this for a while. 
And so I know all the arguments. I already know where he's going. I already know where he can't go. I already, I, I knew that he was getting fed information about Brother Reggie. I talked to Brother Reggie, uh, me and Brother Unc, uh, the other night. I don't know if it was last night. It wasn't last night. It was the night before. So he told me that he was feeding um, Ned or Neb information. And I'm like, you, you, and I told him, you know, you're going to be disappointed, you know, in, 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 in the outcome. Because it doesn't matter what you bring. Until you answer those questions that I asked, it's a mute argument. It's a mute point. And so this is one of the things that over the years I've, I've come to discover. And then once I start asking those critical questions, then it became clear. And so I had to, I had to jump out of the, the historian methodology and I had to go into the scientist methodology where the, where the scientific methodology requires you to prove things. And so this is why I set it up and I, and I dealt with the logical fallacies, you know, and pointed out that he makes a con he, his conclusion is just a repeat of one of his premises that he did not demonstrate or prove. He just made an assumption and then uh, talking about Dr. Diop, and it, it's not even just Diop, it's everybody. And you can't go into no text and they give you a demonstration of why the word Kemet as a nation means black. It's just an assumption. There's no independent basis. So when, when you look up the, like I have a book around here, that, that I use is called. Uh, you know, I've been arguing for a long time, so you gotta you gotta purchase books on how to argue. So this text is called "Fallacies and Argument Appraisal." Christopher W. Uh, Tendali, Critical Reason and Argumentation. So I go through this every now and then, and so I, I just start asking these questions, and so you know that's how I came across, <laughs> of course, the begging of the. Um, the begging of the question. And so it, it fit perfectly. And so once once I under, uh, understood that, and not just now, not in preparation for this, I've been had this book, um, you know, I can make those those types of arguments. And so, uh, of course, there's going to be people who deny what I say because they just don't understand. So you saw him trying to belittle the, 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 the predicate calculus. And I'm pretty sure that he's not very good at math. So to to hide that he's not good at math, you know, he tries to to be little and say something like cute computation, uh, computational linguistics. Like, dude, you have to study much math to do computational linguistics. This is the stuff that allows for you to translate on Google Translate or for Siri to talk back to you. Or for those new devices that can now translate in real time while in your ear. All based on computational linguistics. And so if you understand computer science, you know that computers don't understand anything. They're dumb. You have to program every single thing into the computer. So the computer can't make a distinction like in, in human language. We rely primarily on context for the words that we use. So if I say, for real, 
But if I'm like, for real, for real, there's a different, slightly different context for those. Because I can say, what's up? Or I can say, what's up? Same words. If I was to program that into the computer, it can't tell the difference between what's up and what's up. That's something that human beings have evolved to, to understand from human to human interaction. Computers don't understand that. So you have to be more precise and, and define everything to the T when you're programming. So this is one of the things that has been a, a, a banter in historical comparative linguistics and why people can just move and do all kinds of different things because things aren't properly defined and they aren't rigorously held to a particular uh, type of uh, definition and or methodology. This is something that Emboli has brought up, uh, but notice that Emboli's a, a scientist. He's an electrician. He knows he has to learn these same things. Dr. Ma'at has to learn these same things. Because what the, those logics, I didn't go into logic tables and how to show that formula and, and, and to build a logic table. Those same logic tables is what we use to build computers. And so you have these things called logic gateways and things of this nature. Same same programming that electrical engineers would have to know. And so the, the cute computational, computational linguistics is just a clear sign that he don't understand what the hell it is. And he would more than likely give up because of the amount of math involved and the, and the, and the, and the logic courses that you have to take. And so this is why I did what I did. So I, I can have a point to have these discussions with, with other folks at a later time. So I just wanted the record to have it on record. So y'all can you know, go back and, and see exactly what I did. And then y'all can be like, oh, okay, now I understand. Now that you have some time to just, you know, to view it on your own time. But I hope that makes sense. All right. Uh, my final question is in his demonstration, I would I wouldn't call it that. Uh in his in his opinion, what he demonstrated was that, or his claim is that he was demonstrating uh commitment black people. But he and then in his examples, he referred to uh the Berlin I think it, uh, I think he mentioned a few papyruses. Um, he mentioned the Cahoon papyrus, and he went into the pyramid text, and uh, forgot the other one that he had mentioned, where he was using examples, and then he used Kenti uh, Amentiu um, as an example. Uh, but when you when you asked him the question that you asked him at the end, he had those examples in his presentation, but yet he stated that he couldn't find the evidence to answer the question. So what was the whole demonstrating thing that he was doing earlier? What demonstrating what was that? 
It, it was a waste of time. He wasn't demonstrating a gosh darn thing. And, and that's the point. And so once you answered that question in the negative, you just you just threw your whole presentation in the trash. And so he's still trying to make the argument that adjectives are nouns. And some fathers, I mean, all uh, all fathers are males. But what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? So again, you can interpret it. If you already interpret Kemet to mean black people, any instance that you find in any text, you're going to interpret it as black people. There's nothing I can do about that. My point is that you have to demonstrate that this is a fact first. If I came and said that Kemet means dorsal fin, because there's a there's a Kim, Kimi meaning that means dorsal fin, that every instance of uh, Kemet as a nation means dorsal fin. You don't have an argument against me, against dorsal fin using his method. So I can say that the Kamatians are the dorsal fin people. They have they have uh, dorsals on their back like sharks. So they're the shark people. Let See, me. This, um, is, this is a proof by contradiction. I want to add something that. Um... The entire discussion really was based upon um, the the uh, what do you call it? Kind of the vindic vindication of Shekhan Tejiab's uh, hypothesis with the word Kemet, really. And so the emphasis was placed on Egyptian grammar, Egyptian grammar, Egyptian grammar. And so I was I was I just it needs to be clear that grammar doesn't exist on its own and just because you use the word grammar or any elements of grammar or any of its uh terminology does not make what you're claiming to be true just because you can say certain words that are used in uh the study of grammar um and syntax so morphology etc cetera, etc cetera. and so that's what was what what wasn't done and then on top of that certain things were not ruled out in the analysis so for example um the uh a1 and b1 glyphs of the the, the people determinatives of a, of a kneeling man and a, a woman with the plural strokes uh for example within the grammar of rani kemet you have what's called participles and remember i said participles are adjectival uh form of uh verbs and they can be used syntactically as nouns they could they could hold the position in the distribution of words within a sentence in the syntax of the sentence as nouns but when they do um or sometimes when they do they take on a feminine or they people will call it a feminine but they would be the raised bread loaf and the plural strokes for that so for example um the word ear or eerie the verb eerie which means to do Okay, if I if we wanted to change it into a participle like how I said, I we would say iret with the doubling of the r, iret. But when we write it in the glyphs, it would be ear, it would be the eye, it would be the mouth, it would be the raised bread loaf, but it will also be three plural strokes. But the word is not plural. 
it's there because it's 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 visually showing you that there's an abstract there's a morpheme there that that's percolating to the top in terms of how it was written in the in the in the glyphs or we call graphemes or graphs i should say um representing that notion of it being a participle and so we have to understand so when we go to kemet the word kemet and we see the i6 which is a crocodile um tail the owl raised bread loaf and or the 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 man and woman with the plural strokes uh it doesn't necessarily mean it's uh it's a collective or or that it's an adjective and, and rep, um functioning as a noun to represent the adjective and that adjective actually having a semantic meaning of black because it could be um a normalizing because the because the 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 phenomenon that we that we say when a verb becomes a noun we would say it was normalized this goes for anything uh the normalizing of something it, it couldn't it might not be black it might be to complete or or something of that nature so as i saw as you as you were saying or as people heard you say that you first have to establish what that is first because if you assume already that it's black, then everything you say after that is obviously going to match up to to being black. But you, but if you never ever um, tease that out and unpack that in the first place, then you run the risk of violating logical fallacy of begging the question, and then probably a, a few other logical uh, fallacies we could think of. And so these things have to be uh, pointed out, um, you know, and and emphasized. But along with that, because, you know, I, I don't know how much long y'all have. I, I do want to go over another word that that um, was brought up. And that's confusing because, see, what happens This is another thing. When people transcribe um, or transliterate ancient Egyptian, the glyphs, some people use different transliteration systems. And some people, uh, I call it one foot in, one foot out, where people will take the um, transliteration system, but then they'll add little vowels in there. Like you'll you'll see some people that there's a there's a people who do that. There's people who will write uh Kemet two and they'll put KMT, no vowels in between those, but then they'll put a U on the end. Kemet two. Uh and and things like that. That's unscientific because it hides what, you know, it could potentially hide or or you know won't reveal, express what's really there in the glyphs. This is why transliteration systems were created, so that we could be more precise and um in sync with one another. Um, but commit to, uh, let me just share this real quick. Um, just real quick here. Okay. Um, earlier when I, when I was reading about adjectives earlier, I had mentioned relational adjectives. That was the second category. Remember it's two main categories, of adjectives, uh, qualifying ones and then relational ones. And so I didn't go over the relational ones, but I'm going to briefly just uh, explain that real quick. Because I'm going to go into what I'm what I wanted to say. Uh, a relational adjective is nicknamed Nisbi or Nisba. All right. Nisbi adjectives are formed from a substantive, which we say is a substantival form. Or most people will know that as a noun nominal form. So Nisbi adjectives are formed from a noun or a preposition. And we call it a, a, a nominal form or substantival form and prepositional form. By adding the, uh, the suffix of a elongated or diagonal strokes, which we transliterate as a Y. 
okay, in the masculine, singular, which is written before the determinatives. Like qualifying adjectives, Nisbe adjectives refer to properties and their meaning indicates a relation with the term from which they are derived. And so in English, we would we would have to add the phrase the one from or the one who is or that which is from or that which is. All right. So. Um, wait a minute, let me get back to that so y'all can see my cursor. OK, and so. So now remember, Nisby adjectives are from one of two things, either nouns that we're calling substantives or prepositions. So. The nominal forms or the substantival forms, the substantival form of a Nisby adjective or is a Nisby adjective that is derived from a substantive and shows the same declensional endings as qualifying adjectives. That is a, the substantive itself plus the Y and then plus the endings. When a Nisby adjective is derived from a substantive, that substantive may originally be masculine or it may be feminine. Regardless of the gender of the original substantive, the resulting Nisby adjective will have a full set of adjectival endings expressing gender and number. Among other things, this means that masculine substantives may give rise to feminine Nisby forms, just as feminine substantives may give rise to masculine Nisby forms in both the singular and the plural. Uh, the Y ending is frequently omitted when writing Nisbys. Okay, that's that's understood. Um, um, it should be understood that the Y, this 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 uh, diagonal stroke is often omitted. Only the context and experience allows ambiguity to be removed. So I'm gonna show an uh, example. So a Nisby adjective derived from masculine substantives or masculine nouns. The following Nisby adjective is used as a paradigm for Nisby adjective derived from the masculine substantives, nechari which is divine one is derived from the substantive nature, which people, which is God, people translate as God. All right. Or divine. All right. So here it is in the singular nature. Notice that just the Y is added. Here it is in the feminine singular. We have the T. Now notice that the, that the ending comes after the Nisby, uh, uh, uh suffix is added on there. Okay. In plural, we have nechiru, nechiru, and then we have ut for feminine. All right. Nisby adjectives derived from feminine substantives. The following Nisby adjectives is used in the paradigm for Nisby adjectives derived from feminine substantives. So we have maheti, northern one, derived from the substantive mahet, north. Notice that the original substance substantive or noun is feminine now when we add the y on there as we see in the singular here when we add the y on there that feminine noun now changes into a masculine singular nisby and if we want to make it feminine we have to add another t and this is why in the glyphs you'll see two t's here for metet most people pronounce it metet but it's mehetit with the y Remember, the Y is often omitted. All right. Plural, same thing. We have mehetiu, masculine, uh, in the masculine plural. Feminine plural, 
Mehetiut. All right. The ending of masculine plural nisbis derived from feminine substantives are usually written with the G4 glyph representing TU. Not to be mistaken for the G1. They look alike. So sometimes uh, because of the age of text and things, people will mistake the vulture of G1 with the buzzard G4. Masculine singular nisbi adjectives that are derived from feminine substantives have similar appearance to dual feminine substantives with both of them ending in ty. Okay, so no, notice that um, this sing this masculine singular nisbi, see how it looks like it ends in ty? So people may mistake it as a feminine dual because the feminine dual also has a ty at the end. And notice that there's no dot here to separate to indicate it's feminine dual. This is how we distinguish it scientifically in transliteration one from the other. And this is why I point out that transliteration systems are important and we shouldn't mix, uh, mix them up. All right. Now, a distinction is made uh, a distinction made in this grammar by using a dot. And this is what I just explained. So, for example, we have these two. I don't know if you all can see that. Let me zoom in. These two uh, Newt symbols, which is O49, all right, is a form that has two possible meanings. As a feminine dual form, it means two cities and is transliterated as Newti. Okay, see the dot in between to indicate gender and number. As a Nisbi adjective, it means one relating to a city, or we would simply say a local. A resident and it's transliterated as Niuti as well but without the dot that's how we make the distinction additionally the dual writing Niuti which ought to mean two cities if it were a feminine dual substantive it would it is used in a playful manner to write the Nisbi Niuti relating to this to the city as in this phrase here Netcher Niuti which is a city god or local god that is a God pertaining to the city. So why is this important? Now, I'm not going to go into the prepositional forms, but why is this important? Let me just switch over real quick to this here. Uh, this is the word Kemet, but as a Nisbi. Now, based on what I said, just, just those who are in inside of this session, based on what I said, this word commit to you, is it? Masculine, give me the gender and number of this particular word. Is it masculine singular or masculine plural or feminine singular or feminine plural? Anyone? Masculine plural. Okay, Ekir, excellent. It is masculine plural. Now, even though it terminates with the T, which is, which is the original substantive, it has the ending EU. For the masculine plural. And we see the buzzard, T-U, which is used there. Now, this means those related to X. So when Asar gave his computational uh, linguistics uh, demonstration and had the formulas up there, you notice that we have functions. And then within the parentheses, the functions can receive variables. And so uh, this Kemet would be X, it would be the word. And then we have these affixes that are attached to it to make these changes. 
So the Rodney Kemet word commit to you is a masculine plural relational adjective. I just realized I asked that question and I had to answer on the screen. <laughs> so David, you probably cheated. No, I'm sure you didn't. Okay. Man, man. <laughs> uh, the Rodney Kemet word commit to you is a masculine uh, plural relational adjective or NISPE. Relational adjectives are derived from either substantives or, or prepositions. In a substantive form, the original substantive can either be masculine or feminine. Uh, and I just read that. So let me go down to this particular um, instance. Um, here we are. So so in English, we have to add, you know, those, the one who is or that which is from or that which is. Now in the plural, we have to say the ones from or the ones who are or those which are from or those which are. In our case, the word commit to you, the meaning is those which are from Kemet. From a place, because Kemet is a toponym, it is a is a place name. And I, I don't think that was emphasized enough, uh, or it needs to be emphasized more. Toponyms, place names, place names. Um, or the ones from Kemet or those of Kemet. A similar example is with Har Aketi. Har meaning Heru, being a, being a, a, a name for Heru. And then we have Aketi, horizon. Aketi is a masculine singular relational adjective derived from the substantive Aket, a feminine singular noun or substantive Aket, horizon, which is also a toponym, the horizon. Note that we do not say Heru is the horizon. This is due to the use of toponyms which, which influence the meaning to be one of, that of, or ones of, or those of, or we replace of and from. Likewise, with the toponym Kemet, producing a relational adjective, Kemet to you, those of Kemet. Okay, Mahet to you, those of the north, northerner. Kemet to you, those of the place where this big old river goes through it. It's just like saying uh, Houstonian, Philadelphian. Exactly, Georgian. Washingtonian, New Yorker. We say New Yorker, you know? uh, but but that's but that's the point. So so hopefully this, this drives the point home. And and this was one of the words that was mentioned, but it wasn't spelled out in in the in the uh, more uh, scientific way that we transliterate. It was spelled K M T U, but Kometiu would be the Nisbi. All right. So hopefully that that's understood. Um, so, Sun Ujawu, just hypothetically, that word, uh, uh, the the uh, phrase of Heru of the horizon. If I was to transliterate that as Heru uh, Ak dot Ty, then that would mean Heru of the two horizons. Yes, that would be a genitive construction. Heru of or belonging to. As it be a direct uh, genitive construction, it'd be Heru belonging to or, or related to uh, two horizons. Mm -hmm. Two. And that's how some people translate it. But it's actually hard. They say Harakti. And when they pronounce it all together, but it's Heru Aketi. And that is Horus of the horizon. So when, we, when we're doing the transliteration on, on these words, uh, then we have to take this, we have to use the context to figure out uh, whether or not it's a Nisbi or, or dual? Uh, yes, and I'm, let me go back real quick because that's what I had uh, mentioned here. 
um that that the that the why ending is frequently omitted and only context and experience will remove that that um, uncertainty or that ambiguity. This is where semantics and pragmatics and the context um, is very important. This is where philology and studying the actual text, real text, and not just taking words, you know, on, on their own accord. And this is why it's important. Yeah, that's, that, I mean, that was an important point is that you have to go into the text to to answer certain questions. You can't just go from a dictionary entry without context. Because it just gives you isolated words. And then maybe only one or two forms of the word. Yeah, that and that's what I, I uh, uh stress. That's why I know Asarmatep is uh does it all the time and uh many of us do it all the time, but people need to understand that this is a necessary and important step um to take you can't a lot of people are dictionary driven and dictionaries is part of your tool set you know you do you definitely have to have the dictionaries in your toolbox but you also have to have the text in your toolbox you you, you it's you can't really get far without it because you don't know how these words were used. And that, and that, again, speaks to, you know, the fact that, okay, all adjectives can function as nouns. But I can say the same thing about glyphs. All the glyphs are in and of themselves pictographs. Why? Because they're pictures of objects. Okay. But how they function in a particular instance is a whole different thing. Totally different thing. I can take the pair glyph, uh, which is O1 which is the uh, opening, you know, everybody should be familiar with O1. I can take that glyph and show that on its own, you don't know how it's used. Only when it's actually stuck inside of a word and used in a practical sentence um, that you'll know whether it's a logograph, meaning the full word pair, meaning house, whether it's used for its phon phonological value or phonetic value, the P and the R sound cluster, as a biliteral or if it's used as if it's silent and it's just used to to let you know that it's that the scope of the meaning deals with some kind of enclosure you don't know that until you actually see it used and so likewise uh that's what is important about or or to show the emphasis on all adjectives can be nouns that's meaningless until you actually show all, when it's all used verbs can be nouns too Right, you can normalize. You can normalize. You can normalize anything. <laughs> it's like it, that's why I say it's a waste of time. It's like and you can normalize. I mean, I don't, you can't normalize a uh, preposition on on uh, uh, on. I'm going to the on, but hey, we'll try to do it. But but yeah, you can normalize uh, verbs, adjectives, and you could re-normalize something that was once something else. Already verbalized. That's right. Why, that's the point I made. You can re-verbalize something that, uh, or re-nominalize something that was verbalized, and vice versa. And you know what? I man, I wish I had an example. Uh, um, I was just now talking about that uh, in preparation I have for that in my uh, slide. Uh, but I, I want to answer this question from real quick um, from the the what do you call it? The, the chat room. This has been up for. Okay, hold on, just, just real quick. Here's here, here excuse me. Here's a um, 
uh what do you call it um see it, you know in 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 a grammar discourse in the grammar you know jargon we would call it verbs of quality so so in in Ronnie Kimmett there's there's a verb or an, or an adjective people will say as uh the word ah to be great um or great we just say great but the verb to be great is also uh what the word ah means same thing for nefer nefer so how do you know nefer is not to be good versus good one or just a property good you see so so these you know these are other examples where you have to have both of these analysis but anyway i'm sorry go ahead first of all he got the whole nefer thing wrong because the glyph that he has is a word for grave in the underworld that's a just critiquing that that'll be too long i just wanted to share real quick um and this isn't my presentation that i'm going to share this is jean-claude and Bowles, uh from uh, a presentation that he did on my website on, excuse me, on my youtube channel some some years ago when we first brought jean-claude and Bowles to the english-speaking world and so the question was that she something to the nature of she wanted me to go over the the importance of the the t comparisons in um the egyptian that i did and so i just wanted to first i i'm going to go over that again i just want to stress something that you're probably more familiar with in in terms of uh english so you know as I demonstrated in the presentation that when you're comparing two or more languages, you first compare roots, then you compare the grammatical morphemes. So we had a discussion on roots, and then we had a discussion on grammatical morphemes uh, in relation to trying to figure out exactly what T that was at the end of the word Kemet. Was it part of the root? Or was it actually a grammatical morphing? So that was the ultimate question. Because as, as I ask in the paper, how do we know that Kemet doesn't um, break down into K prefix and then MT root? You know, you would you would have to do some comparisons to understand that. So what the what the T is uh, uh, again is it is a a noun classifier. It puts things into uh, noun classes. It, it's, it's a grammatical feature. And so just like what we see here, uh, Mboli was comparing, dang, it's been four years. Yeah, it was about the time when, when we started to have these issues with NFL <laughs> four years ago. So in English, we, in the singular, we don't have a suffix for for words. But in the plural, we have a plural suffix s. And so if I wanted to compare English, for example, with French, one of the grammatical demonstrations that I can show is that we both, we meaning uh, English and French, have in the singular a zero suffix to words and in the plural an s suffix so we 
we uh, see if those same grammatical features will happen on the same words, the cognate words. So before this, Jean-Claude and Boley established the, for the root words, the sound correspondences. That's, that's these things here. So he, he's showing that, uh, slow today. I'll just stop here. Oh, okay, there we go. So he, he was showing that English and French are related and these are the sound correspondences for each of them, right? And so he adds Latin just as a third party to, to reinforce the relationship between English and French. So that's what I did with um, Sumerian. So I'm, I'm, I'm going, for example, between, uh, the, I added Chiluba as the third component. So we have Sumerian, and I'm comparing Sumerian and Egyptian. And then I add the Bantu language as, as a third party to show the consistency between the three languages. So, so this is what he did. I won't go through this, but just understand that these obey sound rules. And there's formulas. These are the formulas that we're showing here. So when English has F, French has P. When English has the French has T. When English has S, French has S, and so on. And so, again, with linguistics being quasi-mathematical, you can translate any of these signs into numbers and things of that nature. So, so now we go into grammar. And so, you know, he was mentioning earlier, Brother Bujawu, participles and, you know, things of that, that nature. But I'm just focusing on this just to answer your question. So we, we see that for the words for father, it corresponds to the word père or père. In French, horn, horné, heart, horn. I can never really say that. Uh, night, night, nuit, nuit, nuit. So you say bonne nuit. Uh, good night. Um, but you see that in the plural, both of them have the same suffix, the S suffix. And so we represent that with the formula here. So in the singular, both English and French don't have this suffix, uh, A suffix for the, the singular. But in the plural, they both have an S uh, suffix. So that's what I was showing in not with plurals, but the same thing with Sumerian, so that when you're looking at, um, for example, and I'll just uh, try to keep this under two minutes. Um, so as you can see, these words are terminated by this T suffix. But this same, we see a pattern here. Remember, science is about the discovery of patterns. And if, if we discover patterns, we create mathematical formulas to describe the patterns in which we see. So we see this pattern here of these words terminated by T. Many of the Egyptological books will say that this is a feminine gender T. But this can't be the case if they're consistently for the same cognate terms that we established earlier in terms of sound meanings with the same, you know, uh, sound correspondences uh, 
with, with the same meanings for each lexeme, except this grammatical feature is prefixed here in Chiluba. So what is chi here is chi here in Chiluba and it's consistent all throughout. So this on the grammatical plane establishes a genetic relationship because it would be hard pressed, you would be hard pressed to take in loan words and their grammatical features for the exact same words. And so that's why I did this test at the bottom to show that even without the words that aren't cognates, they just have different words in both languages, they still use the same grammatical affixes to, to uh, describe, you know, saying these words. And so that's what you see with ancient Egyptian when it comes to place names in general places. They're all suffixed with T. Well, we just proved the correspondence in Chiluba. We see the same thing in Chiluba with Chi for, for, for place names or just general places and things. That's why we say Chikam for um, Kemet in, in Bantu. So if you hear me say Chikam, it, it can either represent the language and or the place name. And so we see the same T suffix in um, Egyptian. And so it's key in Sumerian. So now that I've established uh, Chiluba and Egyptian, my main uh, languages that I'm comparing is Sumerian and Egyptian. So can I find that same thing in Sumerian? And indeed we do as key. And so I bring it back and, and take Sumerian back to the Chiluba and we see the same prefixes on the same types of words in, in Sumerian that we do in Chiluba and in Egyptian. So that's why we are able to equate these. And we, we learn further that these are reduced forms from these words. So the suffix of place in Egyptian comes from tire. So this is where we get the words like territory from. Terrestrial, extraterrestrial, terrain. That's that. Those words uh, are cognate with this word here. We, we say it's ta, but it's not ta, it's ter. But in, in Sumerian, it's ker or kir. So in the dialect that has kir, that's the one that gave us the prefix of place, key. And so we find it in Proto-Bantu, and we know that this stuff is inherited. So he's not going to get this. It's just going to go over his head. But for anybody who understands and knows, knows that I have just proven the relationship between, you know, or, or provided very strong evidence for the relationship between ancient Egyptian, Sumerian, and Bantu that you can't escape from. So now I've not only have I dealt with the root later, which I showed earlier, I've also dealt with the grammatical morphemes. So I've taken care of everything when dealing with the word Kemet. So I have a solid cognate. Can nobody argue against in terms of the meaning of the word uh, 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 Kemet, um, the place name for Egypt? Because I've taken care of all bases. And so I hope that uh, answers your question and I'll end it. Man. Um, yeah, I think that that, uh, covered, you covered all bases. Uh, something I want to point out, something I want to, I want to, uh, emphasize, uh, that, that, that may have some people confused. I know it confused people in the past is about that feminine T. Um, see in English, we don't have, we don't have a gender in the same way that, um, these other languages such as Rodney Kimmett has. So 
you know, we're kind of oblivious to it. And when we come across languages that do have it, our psychological position about about feminine and masculine is is more so gender based, you know, like this human anatomy, gender based male, female type of thing and not not just two classes, two different categories of words. And so in Rodney Kimmett, all substantives are either masculine or feminine. You know, that's how they fall. If you just throw a bunch of words in the air, some of them will fall on the feminine side, some of them will fall on the masculine side, and they have to be one or the other. They can't fall anywhere else because that's the only choices that you have. And so, but now, just as we said that a word on the island by itself, you cannot determine its syntactic category. Because syntax, you have to see, you have to have uh, an idea about the environment. Without the environment, you, you can't determine syntax. So likewise, you can't really determine the gender of a word in and of itself unless it's it's um, what they call uh, actually gender gendered uh, in terms of male and female. OK, um, you have grammatical gender and then you have the other gender that we're used to. But a word in and of itself, you, you can't make that determination. So how do we determine if a word is masculine or feminine is the way it affects other words around it in its syntactical analysis. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is because what Egyptologists will say a feminine T, they're partly right and they're partly wrong uh, with this bre bread loaf. Because what happens is the T, the bread loaf, can be a, a derivational morphine, which means it takes a word of one class and changes it into a whole nother class. So in other words, it could take an adjective and make it a noun. It could take a verb and make it a noun. Okay, we call it normalizing uh, as far as the process, but it would be a derivational morpheme. So that T or that bread loaf will be one, a derivational morpheme. Two, it will make the word feminine in the environment why and how do we know it is because we have to look at uh, a word the words around it does it agree in gender or in number as as this newly formed word and it's because of that phenomenon is how we'll determine the the gender of this particular word masculine or feminine so so in essence the t can show two things at one time it can feminize a word in terms of its syntactic uh, um, effect on other words, and it could be a derivational morpheme, which uh, or morph, to show that a, a, a class change took place. For example, we have uh, Jew, which means bad. We put a T on there, it takes the word bad and makes it that which is bad. It normalizes it. But or bad one, evil one, or evil, but in a noun sense. And that too can take an attributive adjective connected to it, which will also be feminine, showing that the new word is feminine at the same time being changed in its class. So I just want to emphasize that that one bread loaf, and I could, I could say the same thing about the quail chick, but that bread loaf can represent two morphemes at the same time. And we have that in English as well. I mean, I believe we have English, but I know other languages do the same thing where where one morph can represent two morphemes. 
at the same time. And so the morph would be so the the uh, bread the, the um bread, the bread loaf the bread loaf representing derivation, representing derivation and, gender. and gender at the same time just at like time, just like uh, like, uh, uh the T uh, or, or I should say what would be a good one be a good, um the uh, W and the, the T w represents number and number gender at the same time this WT combination ending for feminine words Okay, so okay, ho hopefully so that was clear. I'm hearing an echo, a big echo, but hopefully that was that was clear that that we have instances. So even in the word Kemet, because toponyms are generally this is a general rule in in Egyptian or Rodney Kemet that all place names. Uh, now there are some exceptions, but all place names will be of the feminine category because of its effect on other words when they're used in a sentence. But the T. Uh, is is as as uh, the comparative work will show deals with a uh, place you know uh, like how sorry you you put um, you had the chi in front of the words to show that it's either a place or an abstraction and the same thing with the uh, with the tea the raised bread loaf it can show abstraction and and but but its syntactic function in its effect of other words will will dictate that it will be feminine so I just wanted to point that out that that we 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 only know this. See, we have to, you know, in English we don't have it. So so it's something that we don't we wouldn't pay attention to and it may be hard for us to grasp. But we have to slow it down when we're dealing with another language that has these other grammatical features. And we can't overlook that. So, y'all still there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm saying I have to I have to bounce. Okay. Um, okay. I have to be somewhere um, in a little bit, but I, I do appreciate the time that uh, y'all have taken to invest in your Saturday when y'all could have been mowing the lawn and fixing the roof and uh, listen to all this nerdy talk about language and ancient Kemet. And so, um, uh, for those you know who are not. Who didn't catch the live conversation? Um, again, it was live streamed on on my personal website on Asar and Hotep. Uh, excuse me, my YouTube channel, the Asar and Hotep uh, channel, which you can uh, search and find. Uh, and thanks to Brother Bujawu for the the streaming services. And um, so y'all can review it on your own time. And so now I'm gonna find me something to eat and i got a bounce so i appreciate everything y'all have any questions hit us up uh on this channel my channel facebook uh twitter i think i have an instagram account yeah instagram whatever just search us on hotel uh i'm a raw squad brother Ujawu, and uh you know ask your questions so i appreciate everyone thank y'all for listening uh, I got a bounce. So peace. All right, yeah, that was uh, yeah, that, that was, was good. And good. uh, you know, like I said, like both I, of you all um did a good job. And I I, I I think this is the way that, that these these intense uh topics should kind of be, you know, raised to the to the to the awareness of everybody. So maybe we'll have something else on a different topic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, yeah. All right, hold up.
Um, and I know Asar had to go, but uh, I mean, we got a few more minutes. Does anybody else have anything? You know, we're we're still streaming live right now on the Amara Squad uh, a channel. Shout out to the Amara Squad, brother Sanjetti, brother Uncle Keck, uh, Sunet or sister Dr. Maat, Sunet or sister uh, Naya, uh, son Jonathan Owens, and uh, uh, son Nahisi. All right, shout out to the whole squad. Uh, we haven't even done any any live uh, streaming uh, as of late, but we're gonna um, you know we're gonna get back into it and everything. You know, every now and then you got you have to kind of let the let the topics percolate to the top again and whatnot. So we're gonna start um, you know just having some good discussions again and everything. Uh, one of our one of our one of the members of Amara Squad, uh, Sister Naya, uh, uh, in the meantime went off and got married and everything. <laughs> so you know um everybody's doing their thing you know um sometimes this could be overwhelming because this kind of work this kind of things that that are done you know we're not it's not like we're it's a job where we're getting paid to do it and people have to eat and and raise family and and still function so sometimes uh you know sometimes we all have to take a break uh from from doing you know doing these kinds of things but uh oh everybody's still here all right but does anybody have any any other thing to discuss um yeah quick question but um before i ask um yeah uh, we'd like to thank y'all for you know just bringing the information and um again congratulations to um senate Nair. you know she deserves that break and uh well my question is um you know and i know you guys went under the hood uh with the what came it, but i'm just gonna ask a surface stop type of question and that is um that was um Kemet always known as Kemet. oh no the 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 land the country um was not known as Kemet at all times now the word Kemet existed from from you know time immemorial as they would say uh but it was not used as a designation for the kingdom the polity until the 11th dynasty middle egyptian or middle kingdom okay um prior to that it was designated, it was used as uh, Tawi, was uh, probably the most used uh, form. And we can see that in the um, titulary of kings. We have Tawi, Sematawi. Um, we have Khenu, uh, which simply means the interior. And there's certain texts that bring this about because you can see in, in texts where expeditions were taking place, where people traveled. That's when the land was referred to as Khenu because they're trying to return to the heart, to the interior because they're, they're on the exterior. So they're trying to go back to the interior. So Khenu was used. Um, Tawi, the two domains, you know, you have the, the two ends. Um, you have, you know, so you have Ta, it's a dual, masculine dual of the word Ta, which means land. And so Tawi will be two. And um, then you have uh, Ta Mary. Ta Seti, Ta Mehu, Ta Shemau, and all these different words used for um, uh, large regions of the country. But in terms of, of the whole country being called Kemet, no, it was it was not used that that way until the 11th dynasty. All right. And, so mm -hmm. will we say that um, that black people had migrated to to that location until the 11th dynasty? 
Right, I see what you're saying. That's a that's a good point. So why what what necessitated the the use of Kemet? Okay, if if the word Kemet meant black people when it's used as a toponym, which in and of itself is is uh, contradictory, but as a toponym, if it's used as a term meaning black people, then why wait until the the Middle Kingdom to call your country? black people and now people will argue and say well that's because of the invasions the hyksos dynasties and so on and so forth and this is what brought about you know the need to separate you know saying you know this is a black country or, or the country of, the, of black folks and things that will be the um uh the rationale um but and that sounds nice but within the borders of kemet what became kemet we have little kemets as Asar pointed out earlier today, we have Kemet's and, and all the designations of Kemet within Kemet was a part of the same theme, land that had access to water. And because it has access to water, it, it is has the ability to produce. And so Kemet as a large region, as a full kingdom, it was the kingdom in East Africa that had a big giant long river going through it so w what better way to designate your your uh place as to describe it as that place which has access to water and they made a distinction between that which had access to water and what it can do versus that which didn't have access to water and what it couldn't do the desheret so remember the word ta, the word ta, if you look at it in the glyphs, the word ta is a flat strip of land. It's flat. And that's how the Remage um, saw their their uh, land flat. And that is that is opposed to the hills. So you have the word ta, you have the word chasit for hills. And hills was used for foreign or 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 the further away you you move out from Kem Kemet. So the flat part and then the hilly part. And so we have to understand that this is how this is the psych psychology and the spatial position that the people had. They made these um, observations and distinctions, and we have to remember toponyms. See, today we have the benefit of GPS. OK, so if I needed directions to get somewhere. All I have to do, you just give me a bunch of numbers and letters. You tell me your your address, your street address. I punch it into a, my phone or computer or whatever, and then it'll guide me to get there. That's what we use today. But we have to remember in history, not too long ago, and then in ancient history, the name of a, a place served as the GPS as well. Because think about it. If I need directions to get somewhere, how will I know when I arrive there? Only way I'll know that I arrived there is if you describe it to me. And I start to see the things that you describe, then I know I have arrived. So toponyms are usually descriptive names of the natural environment, the flora, fauna, and and other things in the environment 
whether there's a prominent type of tree, you may have a, a toponym named after the tree. If there's a lot of water around, the toponym will have something to do with water. All right, so so that has to be understood. So, like, let, let's let's take a, a uh, uh, outside of the word Kemet. Let's take another example. Uh, the name, let's say, um, hmm, Abu, which we know today is Elephantine. The word Abu means elephant, but it also is used as a toponym. On its own, Abu is the elephant, the animal, but it's used as a toponym as well. For the name of a city in the southernmost part of Kemet. Now, the reason why they called it Abu is because of the terrain, the, the environment, the rocks there in that location, they look like elephants. Matter of fact, one of the uh, brothers, uh, Seshu uh, Antoine, when he did his trip to Kemet, he did a presentation and showed, he took pictures of those rocks. Of those boulders, those big boulders, look like elephant ears, big old elephant ears. Uh, Yenu, the word in or yun is um for a column, and so we have the city of columns, which they call Waset or Anu, but it's yun, Yunu. The city of columns. Why? Because columns predominate there. And the Greeks call it the city of the sun, Heliopolis. Because those columns cast the shadows down from the sun. And so they call it the city of the sun. And you have the, the deity Ra and, and, and the cosmogony, cosmology coming out of there for all those reasons. Mehu, ta mehu. Mehu means to submerge, to drown something, to, for, for it to be under. And so Mehu is the swampy area of the kingdom. Again, these are toponyms indicating something dealing with environment. So, so the only way I'll know if I get to Mehu is if I start walking in water, walking in a swamp. Up, up, I must have arrived. I'm here. So if Kemet meant black people and I needed directions to get to somewhere called black people, then everywhere I go in Africa, I would I would be there. I would think I have arrived. It so in other words, toponym served a a a logical, practical, and uh um yeah practical purpose. It distinguished. It allowed people to distinguish one place from another enough so that they know when they get there and when they have arrived or when they left. Because when there's no terrain to describe a place or, or it's not a full city or whatever the case is, the remage practice putting border stones to mark off the territory. Border steli. That just outright told you, hey, this is us. Don't come, don't cross this line. You cross this line, you know, you're in our territory, so on and so forth. The word cataract. The cataracts that are along the Nile. They're so named because of the rocky conditions and the water is it's like brief little waterfalls. You can't get a boat over there over those. The word chaset, meaning hill, 
It comes from a, a root meaning ka, which means to to be held up high, or hill. Something that's something else that's up high. So, so the the word for up high became the word for hill, and the word for hill because of where the hills were located became synonymous with everything that came from beyond the hills, which is our word for foreign, and it became a word for foreigner. So therefore, the rulers or the administrators or important people that's beyond the hills became known as the Heka rulers, Chasut, of the foreign hills, beyond the hills, the foreign rulers. Chasut means foreigner, but it also means hills. So, so again, these are descriptive terms, and, and Asar showed the slides where uh, Af how Africans named their um, their. Their places. Look at the uh, river, the uh, Nile River, uh, Happy Itaru. Look at the uh, Mediterranean Sea, Wedge Wur, the Great Green. And remember, in in uh, certain communities, green is not always green like what we think. Like there, 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 there's certain <clears throat> there's certain um, communities of people, certain uh, cultures that they don't even distinguish green from blue. And they're not colorblind. It's just that they psychologically they don't have words to make those distinctions. So we have to, you know, so I understand. I know I'm, I'm just rambling on, but anyway, but that's but that we have to understand all of these things. Kemet, it wouldn't make sense for Kemet to be a designation for the skin color of the people, no matter how wonderful and beautiful that sounds for us trying to gain our identity and pro-blackness. Um, but as Asara Imhotep showed, there's a lot of Kemets all over Africa. Uganda, Wakanda, Buganda. So it doesn't always have to mean uh, black or black people. All right, so anyway... Um, I mean, I mean, there's really nothing to to say. Like, for example, uh, the people who live in in Deshra. Okay, let's. <laughs> this is another example I, I gave. I give. Um, um, what's the word hedge mean? Anybody know what the word hedge? Hedge. White or silver. Right. He, uh, it means white or bright. And there's there's a there's uh places that are called hedge. Uh, hedge, and then another another word. So are these. Are, are these uh, cities of white people? Because we have the word hedge, meaning uh, bright or white? No, it doesn't. The word hedge in those instances, instances is talking about the um, where the sun uh, brightens and lights up. It's not talking about the skin color of people. You have uh, the white walls in uh, Menefer, where uh, Hit Ohut Ka Pata was, the 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 uh, big temple uh, dedicated to the to the Netra Pata, who was south of his wall. He has different epithets, but it's but you have these white walls that are that that the city was named after. So you had these pyramid complexes that were in. 
dislocation of white walls and then the popularity of the of the pyramid complexes um dominated to where it became known as men nefer memphis the greeks knew it as memphis But does anybody have anything else? Uh, I don't know if, if if people are still uh, watching. If anybody in the chat, you know, I I, I had asked if anybody wanted the the link, but it, I didn't I didn't really get a response. And I know there's there's a delay. But how about from any any of you all? Son David, Sis Bev, Sean. None for me. Nin. Nin. All right. So in terms of grammar, in terms of our course, in terms of our study in grammar, this this is an example. Today is, an, is a good example of the importance and why it's important to study the grammar the way that we're doing it. Not only just to study it, but to study it the way that we're doing it. Um, you know, um, if you buy a grammar book on Egyptian grammar, you're going to just be thrusted into the grammar. They, you know, at the beginning of the book, they're going to briefly go over some of the basics of the glyphs, how to read them in what direction and so on and so forth. They go over the the affinities of the language, whether it's whether it's uh, what they call Afroasiatic and stuff. This is the beginner of all all of the grammars out there. And I pretty much have all of the grammars um, in my possession. And what they don't do, which is what we do do, is we go over very foundational or essential aspects of grammar in and of itself to 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 form that basis in order to learn the grammar of Rodney Kemet. It's very important because if not you we'll miss these things. And so just like there's a syntactic distribution of words where only certain words can can hold that position. Uh like you can't say the in a verb. As I said earlier, we'll find the same things take place in Rodney Kimmett, which makes it easier to identify syntactic patterns and not just morphological patterns with the glyphs and the words. So it's because of this is why we know if I were to say, if you were to look at an inscription, I wish I had it readily available. It just take me too long to pull it up, but I'll just mention it. Um, and I'm sure you are familiar, familiar with this. When, when, if you see um, the phrase uh, "Dni in ek unk uja senev Dni in ek unk uja senev when you see that written there's a there's things that are omitted in the writing that I'm actually saying Dni in ek unk uja senev it's because of the morphological analysis and the syntactic analysis that we are that we understand and can show what is meant and what was omitted versus what um, is there. Because of how things are formed, like, for example, the um, what's transliterated as an IW uh, uh, son, Chris. Where do we do we find that? Do we find an IW? I'm, I'm just giving a transliteration because I don't have uh, anything readily quickly that I could show. But IW, you, do we find that in the middle of a sentence or clause? Yes or no? 
you use the beginning of a sentence, or right? Exactly. The particle. Exactly. Okay, so it's it's little it's things like you know things like that that we'll know how to parse sentences and how to and it is, this is based on the syntactic structure, the environment. All right, so anyway, I you know I don't want to go on and um, when I but you know like I I was mentioning to you all we're, we're trying to you know we kind of combined our uh, grammar discussion that we do with today's discussion, which was a very good discussion from um, from both. Um, and um, it's good that the two brothers took the time out to um, to even have the discussion. And um, and I guess, you know, it was recorded. It, it's it's on the Saramotep's channel, but it was also recorded by the uh, moderator, Quadro, brother um, Quadro, who's going to, I guess, give it to a panel of linguists. Now, he didn't mention the names of these linguists, which I think should have been mentioned. Somebody should have asked. Um but who you know, whoever these the linguists are, et cetera, et cetera, to just review what was said, which is which is a little different because usually linguists or scholars they they review uh, papers. That's why you write abstracts and you write papers because presentations are you know you're limited with time and and you can't demonstrate and show things that you want. In the slides you want to be brief, you want to talk about points, you want to hit bullet points, but not really hit, get the meat of everything. That's what the writing is for. So Asar, you know, he so far he said he has 41 pages dealing with this topic um, that I'm sure a lot of things he didn't cover or couldn't cover. And that and that Ned probably has some things that he couldn't include in uh, the slides that he would probably uh, would be able to write down and stuff. So um, maybe that should go on as well. Uh, Sean, you have something? then now i'm good i'm good you answered pretty much everything and the examples and all of that so okay was there any questions on the chat is it, was anybody looking at the chat nah just uh uh some old shoe selling guy popped up in the chat trying to sell some abju wear <laughs> um, you said some shoe some shoe selling guy <laughs> <laughs> to you <laughs> yeah support uh abju wear uh, he said he he said uh, he's he's taking the hood back or transforming the hood one shoe at a time. So yeah, you got Abju uh, where in the building. Uh, I think Uncle Kek was was in here for for a second. But yeah, I don't see any questions. So yeah, I'm going to end it because you know it's been a long day, uh, and I'm sure everybody here has been listening in some form or fashion. We have people from across the pond. Uh, son of Emmy Cat yeah. and uh, Sis B. Yeah, yeah uh, table. Yeah. Uh, the guy wanted to know. Um, you've you've said this before, but I I think he just forgot, and so he's asked. Uh, could you could you explain what your name means? Oh. Uh, yeah, I, I don't mind that. Um, but while I explain it though, let me show it. Um. Well, my whole my 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 name is Wujao Min Ib Erimaat, and the word and Wujao, what everybody calls me and sees Wujao, is a form of the word that people say as Uja, when they say Unk Uja Seneb. The Uja they're saying U, is really a W, Wu, and so Wuja and then U, the last 
W on my name is um, expressing a stative condition. Wujau. And it means he, third person, he who is in a state of balance or a state of vitality or, or a sound state in need of nothing. And so it is classified uh, with psychology with the color green, which is why you see green in my name here. It is also uh, uh, attached to Wajet, which is why you see the snake with the red crown, the Desheret crown for lower Kemet uh, on my name as well. So a lot of times in my art and stuff, I, I, I tell a whole story that that, you know, multiple things at one time. People just see my name and say, oh, this looks nice. It looks like, you know, fancy cursive. But there's a lot of things within the W of my name. The, the snake forms the W. Within the snake and within the W, you have the jaw symbol. I don't know. I don't know if people peep that, but I'm, I'm, I'm explaining it while I'm while everyone can see it. Uh, I can't show my cursor to point out, but within the W, the, the middle piece in the W is the Ja symbol in the word Wu Ja. So you have the, the Cobra uh, and, and, and that's it. So all I really have to do is just show the W of my name as a logo and that would actually spell the, that whole first name, Wu Ja, Wu Jiao. All right, but anyway, Wu Jiao um, means he who is uh, vitalized or he who's in a state of vitality. All right, Minib is uh, Minib. Min means stable. It's a vertical. I'm sorry, me. It's a horizontal st stability. Jed being the vertical stability, where stable or, or to be stabilized. Min is stable horizontally. Minib is a stable will. And then Erimaat, a practitioner of that which is true, or or uh, one who does that which is right or correct or true ma'at there's actually a king uh whose name is um iri ma'at <clears throat> all right and and what's what's interesting is that when i um when people first a couple of people first saw my name online uh because it i had because well on, online it's just wujau but when they found out that 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 the last part is iri ma'at they assumed that that I was a female because I have my eye in my name. And so, you know, I had to explain it uh, that just because you have a, a feminine or a or a yeah, feminine deity or a female deity in your name does not make you a feminine. There's a, there's a lot of kings and, and, and people <laughs> who uh, had feminine or female deities within their names and stuff. Meri Sekhmet, beloved Sekhmet, could be part of a, a, a name. You have women who had masculine deities and stuff in their name. So, you know, so that that was easy to explain, just, just for clarity, just so people will know. But the Ma'at in my name is not, uh, is not a reference to the deity. It's, it's a reference to that which is true, that which is right which is personified as a female deity though. So is there anything else? <clears throat> 
I see we got a couple people. We got Chief Holiday in the house. We got uh uh Admiral Majai. I thought Uja meant prosperity. Yeah, see, um, okay, I'm glad that the person said that. When we translate words, we have to understand that translation is a science and an art. And rarely will you find a one-for-one -one correspondence between a target, a source language and a target language. Wujau can mean prosperity. But then, like I, I say this all the time, if, if I say word A means, um, if I say word A means X, then you can ask me, well, what does X mean? And then I have to say, well, X means Y. Then you can ask me what Y means. I say, well, Y means Z. Then you can ask me what, what Z means. And we could go on and on and on. It's an infinite loop. And so what happens? So what happens is we get to a point where we've established enough environment called a semantic environment to know and ascertain meaning. That's what semantics mean, meaning. So we do this enough to, to set up the environment. It's almost like building a house. When you totally don't know what a word means and you ask and you and somebody gives you one word or one meaning, that may not be enough. That may that may be just the wall, two walls. And so you got to ask me, well, what does that mean? And then I give you some more of it until you get a nice enclosure, a nice semantic enclosure. That's when you know what it means. So anyway, uh, Wujau or uh, Wujau, Uja, as people say, it can mean prosperous. But prosperity comes from being sound. It's, it's not pros prosperity as in rich because like somebody with money you, you you may think of them as prosperous but that's not what uja uja means or wuja means it's prosperous as a result of being in need of nothing health wise and others that's why it's, it's put together with life and seneb which is health Vitality. All of these words are 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 nuances of the same thing. Anku ujau senebu. Anku uja seneb. Anku ujau senebu is may he live, prosper, and be healthy. And all three of those things are the triad or triune um, thing for for wishing somebody to be. Um, Perfect, perfectly fine, balanced. All right, was that, is that it? Because I don't want to, you know. That's it? I see somebody unmuted. Somebody, oh, uh, Sunday, have you had something? Oh, man. All right, well, that's it. Because then, then I'll, I'll be reaching for questions, and I don't want to do that because then, then people will, will get off topic. People start asking me, uh, uh, you know, about some other stuff. Uh, is Egypt really found in America? Did they find the, the 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 mummies in the in the Grand Canyon? Is the Mississippi River really the Nile River? <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I hope everybody um, uh, learns. And so you know, we'll resume with our, our grammar, um, and and we'll we'll pretty much intensify with that as well with the language but grammar is important and this is something i'll close with i i suggest everyone uh if you have time take time out to revisit the grammar of the language that you speak every day if it's english then revisit that 
if 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 your mother tongue is Spanish, revisit the grammar of it. You'll be surprised at what you'll come to learn. Although you do it and use it, you'll be surprised at what you learn because because, you know, when we when we communicate, we're in an instance of using something, but really not knowing why. Or how we just do it because we know. We 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 grew into this pattern. It was organically done as a baby. We learned, you know, to speak and stuff like that. But we really didn't analyze things or why we do stuff. And that and that can open up for problems later on when you don't know the the all the question answers to the questions of who, what, where, when, why and how. If any of those elements are missing, then you you leave yourself a little open because you can know what to do all day long. Steps one through ten. You, you can know what to do. But if you don't know why you do what you do, then if something gets out of whack or goes array, then you'll be stuck and you'll be vulnerable. But by you knowing why you do what you do, then you can develop and innovate and create. If steps one through ten, let's say step eight is missing. Now you you know why step eight is there and why you're doing everything else. Now, you know how to correct it. You know how to substitute A8 with 8A, etc. And so the same thing with language. And this is my approach and in, in, in how in my style of teaching Rodney Kimmett, people are going to understand the how and whys. Why do adjectives, why can adjectives function as nouns? I explained that earlier. It's because adjectives syntactically behave just like nouns. They take declensional endings just like nouns, only the attributive ones. There's another class of adjectives that don't. And they're not nouns and they're never nouns. So not all adjectives can be nouns in that sense. If I say the word desher, majat, what am I saying? I say the phrase desher majat. What am I saying? Book is red. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Red book. Book is red. Well, no, Sean, you have to be uh, specific because because what you see, and, and I'm glad you did that because those two sentences are are different. The book is red. I mean, red book, and the book is red are are different. And see, that may that may not seem like a difference because, you know, we you know, and, and it won't make a break in English. We know we know what people mean. If I, if I say red book versus the book is red, I'm saying the same thing. And so nobody nobody would think anything of it. But scientifically and linguistically, especially when we're studying the, uh, a language, those are two distinct different expressions. And so Desher Majat is. Uh, what son, son Chris uh, mentioned, the book oh. is red. But if I say Majat uh, Desharet, red book. Now I'm saying red book. Exactly. And so the difference between the two, if I say Desher Majat, that Desher, that adjective, is not functioning as a noun and can never function as a noun in that environment because it is in the predicate. And it's only talking about a property, not a property and an entity. Why? Because the entity is mentioned. Majat, the book. 
But if I say majat desheret, now that now notice when I said desher majat, I said desher without the t, desher. But if I say majat desheret, I have to add the t there because now it's an attributive adjective, and it, and it's modifying the the noun in front. Red book. But if I take the book off of there and make it independent, the adjective independent, and just say desheret, what am I saying? I'm saying the red one. Which book? Desheret. The red one. And so these are the differences. And so it it is it's this level of study of the language where you know the who, what, where, when, why, and how. You don't have to say that all adjectives can be nouns and then can't explain why. But we can explain why. And we're we're learning as a group. I know you all, we're learning. Uh more people are learning uh all of these different things. But it's important to know. Participles, verbs that that um have an adjective form and then also can be nominalized. First of all, a verb can be converted to an adjective, and then that adjective that came from a verb can therefore then be nominalized to become a noun uh, in its own right. We call them participles. And they're used a lot in Rodney Kimmett as epithets. Which are descriptive titles and, and lofty titles that people have and royalty has and kings and so on and so forth. Deities. All right. So this is important to know. All right. So. Anyway, I don't know if people are still going to uh, take, you know, what their uh, um, convention is, conviction is going to be, whether Kemet means land of black skin people, referring to the skin color people, or uh, if, it's, if they're going to understand that Kemet is referring to a place. First of all, it is a toponym. <laughs> it refers to a place that has access to water. And Kemet has a huge access to water, one of the longest rivers in the world, basically. The Happy Itaru. It has swelled every year in the season of Paret, I'm sorry, the season of Akhet, the flood. And that's just that. The land of the flooding. And then you have Ta Meri, Ta Seri. Those are two two things. You, and you'll notice this about the remage. Oh, and another thing. If let now this is just a, a logical question. If the word Kemet by itself means the land of black people or black people, right? Let's just take the land out of it. Let's say it means black people. Kemet. Black people. Then when I when we find the combination of the phrase remage knee Kemet or just without the knee remage Kemet is that saying uh the people the black people like twice the people the black people the people the black people or grammatically correctly is saying the people of this place Kemet being a toponym the remage knee Kemet the remage who belong to what Kemet a place Remich ni kemet, ra ni kemet. Ra meaning the mouth or language, the language of kemet. Ra ni, the 
the language that belongs to Kemet. All right, so anyway, uh, with that, I'm going to say Shimon Hotep. I don't see any questions in the chat. All right, so anyway, yeah, so so uh, nice after build, and uh, ho I hope to see whatever uh, comments and commentary that um, that the linguists, these these uh, unnamed uh -huh. linguists, will uh, bring about. Yeah. Uh, before we end, I want to ask you this question. Um, I gotta ask you this question real quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It it was said that uh, Neb. Uh, supposedly invalidated Asar's determinative rule. And Asar kept trying to stress the importance of determinative. Did you, because I know that you paid attention to that, did you hear that as well? Because I'm not, I, I, I know I'm not slow or anything like that, but. Um, invalidate the determinative uh, rule. Rule. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, I di I didn't hear a determinative rule, so I don't I don't see how any anybody or can can invalidate a rule that was not a rule or stated as a rule. Now, what I do know is that the question was asked about the determinative for the for the color black, describing something um as black being the hair. Uh, glyph and how shinny was actually originally uh also the word kim as well and so um what we know about the language that determinative there are, there are certain class of words that may not be marked with determinatives and they're ones that are we have to understand the function of determinatives why do they even exist because determinatives, without determinatives, matter of fact, I think I have one I could show. Um, let me see. Uh, wow. I thought I may have had one that I could show quickly without going through a whole bunch of uh, changes to find it. Okay. So I don't have one readily um, available. But as I'm talking, I'm going to see if I can find one. Um, but, but we have to understand, you know, the, the purpose of determinatives itself. And matter of fact, I'm going to find it real quick. Cause I'd rather talk while I'm showing. Uh, give me a second here. All right, here we go. Uh, give me one minute. And I promise to be fast this time. <laughs> okay. So um, previously, I, I've, I've done this a few times. I've done several presentations on um, on determinatives in a, in a brief format a brief lesson so here's just here's i'm gonna share a couple of slides on determinatives um from from that uh quickly um so 
Um, so first, you know, first I explain what semantics is. Semantics, basically, the gist of semantics, it deals with meaning. All right. Without getting into a long uh, speech about semantics or even the field of semantics as a formal field. But when you see the word semantics, just understand that you're dealing with meaning. OK. All right. So we have uh, transliteration and translation. Let me see. Let me just uh, skip through. Okay, so what I'm stressing here is that when when we when we talk about something as being translated, and mind you, the only reason why you need to ever translate something is when you want to bring meaning. Remember, translation is a semantic endeavor, which means that it is it is it it involves meaning. That's what translation is. The word trans means to move. Okay, so you're moving meaning from a source language into a target language. That's what that's what the act of translating is. Okay, so translation is the communication of meaning of a source language text by means of an equivalent target language text. Translation depends on knowledge of the language. So I just show an example here. We have the glyphs, these three glyphs here, and the transliteration is how we would transliterate it as RA and then MS for the second one and SW for the third one. And then we would translate it for meaning uh, as Ra bore him. And then once you translate um, the, the words, you have to conform to the target language grammar. So for example, easy one, Spanish to English. In Spanish, uh, you may hear the phrase Casablanca. And that's perfectly okay in Spanish. But in English, when I bring that over, the meaning of it over into English, I have to uh, make it conform to English grammar. I can't say uh, house white which is what casa means house, blanca means white. I don't, we don't say house white. We say white house. So we have to switch it. Okay. So that's just has to be understood. Now the role of determinatives, what is the functional purpose of determinatives? Determinatives, um, that's why they're called determinatives because they aid in determining meaning. So, so some linguists refer to determinatives as semantemes. There's that word semantics again, meaning semantemes. Now, without getting too far uh, off, when we say phoneme, morpheme, lexeme, semanteme, all of those words end in eme. And they're ended that way because it's talking about the underlying abstraction. That produces the surface realities. So semantemes are those abstract underlying meanings that percolate to the top and realized in some kind of form. And this is what determinatives represent. Okay, so now words spelled with phonographs usually have one or more signs added at the end that serve as classifiers to determine the range of meanings that are applicable 
to a particular word. A determinative is a device used to express the presence of semantic properties of a word, that is, its meaning. This is useful because homographic words would be problematic. In other words, if we were to, re to erase all the determinatives in the, in the language um, that they use, we would see a whole bunch of words that look just alike. A whole bunch of words that look just alike. For instance, I'll give three examples here. These three glyphs here are transliterated as PRT, and we uh, pronounce it with Egyptological uh, uh, pronunciation with Peret. All right? These three glyphs exist in all three of these words, but these three words are different. How are they different? How are they shown or marked for that difference is by these determinatives. The first word is the word Peret. Now, we will pronounce all these the same way as well, uh, given the fact that we don't know the vowels in between. So we say Peret, Peret, Peret. This Peret means is the season, is one of the three seasons Kemet uh, went through. It's the second season, the season of emergence. When the seeds were planted and the flowers and the, and the, the um, what was planted starts to emerge. All right. The second one is Peret, meaning fruit or seed. It's determined by a plow. It's a determiner. That's that's how we know it's dealing with seeds or fruits. So this is a different word, Peret, than this word. They look alike, sound alike, even have the same glyphs if it wasn't for these determinatives. Then we have Peret, meaning to exit. This is the word that's linked to the word Raul Niyu Peret Imheru which is the word for the, for the so-called Book of the Dead. The, the utterances for the emerging into, into light or whatever. All right? So the importance of determinatives is to eliminate the ambiguous nature that otherwise we would have in the writing system. Remember, determinatives is a script, is an orthographic thing. Because you don't speak them. So if it wasn't for the writing system, you wouldn't need determinatives. Because in the spoken language, the differences, these semantics would percolate as sounds called vowels. So we would have different vowels that would allow us to, to know the distinctions in most cases. This may be purut. This one may be piret. This one may be parot we don't know so in a writing system we do know we're staring at him okay so here's another example these three glyphs transliterate dpt we pronounce it depit two words exactly the same without these determinatives the first one is depit meaning boat and it's determined by a boat. The second one means to taste. It's a taste. Determined by a tongue and a man with his mouth, hand pointed to his mouth. To taste. Without these determinatives, they will look the same. All right? Last one. Four examples of this word, when. All four of these words have the same glyphs. 
if we took these uh, determinatives away, they would look the same. They would be pronounced the same by us and everything. We wouldn't know anything from anything. We wouldn't know which one we're talking about. But here, this one means open. This is a door. Glyph. This one means to hurry. Legs in motion glyph. This is a sparrow, which is a, which is a, a diminutive ver uh, bird, which, which, which uh, deals with negative stuff, blame and stuff. The hair determinative which means to strip off, dealing with, with attributes, qualities, characteristics of something. All right? Without these, we wouldn't know. So just that briefly, and that's it, just that brief demonstration shows how these are very, very vital, very important. So anyone trying to refute or disqualify the importance of determinatives is, in essence, trying to to bring back the the ambiguity back into the into the fold which is what the remage or the scribes of the remage uh try their best to eliminate that's the purpose of the determinatives in the first place all right so no the importance of determinatives was not disqualified or refuted by anyone and can't be because the moment you do that then you're left with uh homographs these are graphs here. We call them glyphs, but they're graphs. Homo meaning look alike. I mean, the same. These look the same. Homographs. Now, we don't know what vowel is in between these, so I can't call them uh, homonyms uh, in full because they may be pronounced different. Or homophones, I should say. All right. So anyway... Um, so I just want to show that to, to, to answer your question that, um, that no, it does, it does not, uh, disqualify that at all. And the determinatives that are, that are used, um, are very important. Uh, as Osar showed that a toponym, there's certain toponyms that are used to represent place names. Kemet uses toponym. And and as as Asar showed as well, there's a lot of words that that um, have a K and M consonants uh, clustered together like that. Why isn't that chosen? Like for example, if you were to look at Kemet, do I have Kemet up here? Um, I guess I don't. Uh, let's see. Okay, here we go. Oh, no, that's not. Okay, here we go. Let me just show this. I'm just going to. Um, okay, can y'all see that? Okay. Um, if we were to take this determinative off, just as I said with the other determinatives, what would allow us to come to the conclusion that this combination of, of these three glyphs are the ones that point to, to black and not the ones that point to something else? 
You understand the question? Yeah, the only way you could uh, possibly do that would be in context of whatever's going on in his sentence. Okay, that's true. Context dictates meaning. This is when you get to semantics that's that's, uh, married to pragmatics. So you would have to have the context of where it was used. So again, anybody saying that all adjectives can be nouns without the environment of its use, it's meaningless. This is what we mean. So you spoke rightly that you can only tell if this determinant wasn't there, you can only tell by the context in which it's used. So what was given today, Brother Sarmotep showed examples of where it was used, how it was used. Where the word Kemet was not used as an adjective or anything because in the same paragraph, I wish I wish I had it to show it um, because I like to show it as I'm as I'm speaking about it. But in the same um, uh, text, the word Kemet was uh, put together with other uh, place names. It wasn't talking about uh, people. As a matter of fact, let me just show. Let me just show it, because I like to show things. Plus, it give me a, uh, an excuse to be uh, MC Iron Lung some more. Y'all know how I like to be MC Iron Lung. But hold up, I'm gonna show it real quick. Here we go, right here. Let's see if I can make this a little bigger. And it's probably a little blurry, but hopefully you all can read that. Can y'all read that? Okay, this is the text that was used earlier. All right. We see the transliteration here and the glyphs for the word Kemet is is uh, put inside here to show where it's located. So the translation reads, it was after he had ruled Egypt. Hekai and F. Kemet. Uh. And after he had put, read the NF, had put or let the red land, as this translation says, in his company that he came to us. It was after he had protected the two lands. We have Tawi, Miki and F, which is had protected past tense, the two lands. And after he had pacified the two banks, Sagar and F which is to pacify or to calm, to quiet. The two, the two banks, Idebwi, that he came to us. It was after he had caused Egypt to live, Sa'ank, which to, is to enliven, past tense, NF, to cause to live. Egypt, he had removed its needs that he came to us. So notice that Kemet is used, is a theme going on here. Kemet is being used next to other locations. Idebwi is two riverbanks. That's a top toponym. Kemet, Desheret, uh, where was it? Right here. Tawi, right here. Kemet again. So we have Kemet, Desheret, then we can run into Tawi, then we run into Idebwi. Then we run into Kemet again, and 
so on. Context dictates meaning. So if this means black people, then it's to be if is this in contradistinction distinction from red people here? Is this wet people here? Uh bank <laughs> like bank people? Is this is this flat people? So context dic 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 dictates meaning. Context is the mother and father of meaning. Because because I can take a word and, and just give you a word in isolation by itself. Remember, the way language works, language is not an isolating phenomenon. Language is is an illusion, number one. Two, it is a um a what do you call it? Inclusive type of phenomenon. You can't have a anything in isolation with language. That's not how it works. All right. So anyway, uh, I don't want to be too long, but that that's uh, hopefully that uh, answers uh, the question and uh, also speaks to what you just uh, mentioned, uh, son, uh, David, because without this determinative, we would not know and we would have to use the context. And so this is uh, Kemet, the two ways in which it's written and Desheret, the two ways in which it is written. I think, um, like uh, what Senshan was asking about, was it um, determinative law? I think uh, while I was listening to the to the show, I think um, Nebil started by building a case why um, determinatives, um, you know, are not always written. I think he was building a case to explain why, um, you know, why it would actually ignore the the determinatives or not or explain why it's not important. That we don't have determinatives that um, you know that show um, that are designated to skin color when it comes to the white chemist, but trying to um, ignore the the rules that we know just so that you could you know explain why something does not exist that should be existing for you to explain something just didn't make sense. So I think that whole determinative law was just to explain why he doesn't have the evidence. Right. I mean, and the final question that was asked was was can can, is there an instance where you can show where that exists? And the answer is simply no. And so now we have to explain it and hold on to the assumption and the belief that Kemet means the land of black skinned people. And it doesn't. The evidence shows contrary to that, because there is nothing. If I was to remove this glyph right here, there is nothing in it that will dictate or ensure that this is the one that means black. Why doesn't why doesn't this Kim mean mean any of the other words that have the same glyphs in it? Like the word to complete, the word to pay taxes, to pay food, to, I mean to pay uh make a payment, and so on and so on and so on. There's nothing. Exactly. At all. So so this is what Asar meant by an assumption is being made first. And and he uh, laid it out very, very well about the begging to question the begging uh, a question fallacy, because when, when you argue, you argue logically. This is something people need to really study. They, they got to start. We have to start pushing, um, uh, formulating, you know, logic statements. And this is it comes from math. Anybody who, who dislike math in school. 
and or science, man, you know, it's going to be rough. But anybody who understands math, they know it perfectly well what logic is and how logic can be expressed. And, and we and, and we have to uh, be able to stress that. We have to be able to stress that more. So people need, really need to pay attention to logic. But the argument was laid out very, very uh, well because you can't have two premises. You can't co- make a conclusion based on two premises that that in and of themselves were not substantiated. So to assume that this Kim is black would be a mistake because if I make that assumption, then I'm going to have a conclusion based on that that uh, assumption. So as as I was always taught and as I always repeat and share with everybody is you never, ever acquiesce to a faulty premise because the moment you acquiesce to a faulty premise, you will always come to a faulty conclusion. And so the premise is faulty. There's nothing that will tell you that this is the Kim that refers to the color black. Even though such a word exists, this may not be that word. And so to assume that is the assumption. And the brother Netanyahu went uh, kind of went on about Asar assuming and then, you know, name dropped with Shekhar and the Jiyok and other scholars. Yes, people can assume. Yes, our scholars can assume. Yes, everybody can assume. Nobody's above assumption. And people can know all the grammar that in the world and misapply it. Just because you know what an adjective. I mean, look, look at the English language itself. Most people will will tell you that they speak English. But when you drill down and ask them some precise questions about grammar in English, they'll fail. I can ask I can ask the audience right now. What is a word? And I guarantee you that everybody prior to me asking that question will will think that they know what a word is until I ask the question. What is a word? Until they are faced to give an answer, then the problem starts. Try to tell me what a word is, and I guarantee you, you will have a hard time. Guaranteed. Because I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you an easy reason why, just one reason why out of many, because I can give you one word from one language that will end up being three words in another language. So what makes a word a word is number one, language dependent and two, how how that language functions in terms of its uh, analytic aspect versus its synthetic aspect. Does it build words from affixes or does it build words from separate entities? An example I gave and something that we we recently covered is the example of move, moves, moved and moving. Are those separate words or are those different forms of the same word? And that alone should tell you that a word is not easily defined. Moves and moved. Those are two forms of the same word. They're not different words. 
They're just inflected to agree with the syntactic environment and how it's used. But to the layperson, move is not the same spelling and everything as moves. Moved and moves, you know. So in our minds, we would say, hey, those are two different words, but they're not. So anyway, all right, I can go on. So let me uh, uh, stop sharing. And uh, anybody have anything to close? <laughs> nope. I think somebody's everybody's eating. I need to do the same. Uh, or some disappearing here. So man, um, look who it is, Ujawu. Hey, can y'all hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, man. You growing that gray hair, man. Hey, it's all good shit. Black African power. Up oh, there it is. <laughs> Uncle Kex in the building. Abjuez is in the building. Yeah, Black African power family. Hold on, let me let me let me, let me let me let me let me let me put let me put it. Uh, hold up one second. Let me just make sure. Uh, switch it over. <coughs> I mean, you you could you could keep talking. I'm sorry. Oh no, I'm saying I didn't listen to uh, leave the discussion. I heard it was kind of long. Um, I wish they would have did like 20 minute rounds. And you know, refute your round and then give out your information. That way we could have seen, you know, exactly what it is. So, you know what I mean? I I hope it don't take a linguist to really understand the argument. But let me ask y'all this question. Uh we and I don't know if y'all already said it, but I wanna ask it. So how about determinatives in the meta -netra? Um, so is there a determinative in the meta -netra on a papyrus or something like that that would clearly show that they was talking about black people or black land or something like that. Let's just start with black people. Is, is it determinative like that in the metanature for that on a particular papyrus? Not for the word Kemet, but but the, the Egyptians, the Remish, they describe things and objects as black. Yeah. So so there there does exist the adjective black and that word was used to describe things. So we for example we have um uh which would be the eye the eye uh substance for for eye paint and everything that was black um so and, and things so, so i mean but is it a determinative this this clearly showing you that they was talking about black people that's the point i want to make and, and I, I just answered no there there's no. not so, there. so hold on so then why in the hell did y'all have a three-hour conversation about that <laughs> i mean not not trying to be funny but i my whole presentation would have been that because i guess just the layman can understand that well, see that that's uh, Charles Trimani Metanetics do a great job on that, but, but it's not even up for debate in the Metanetics because they, you know, they didn't. It's, it was almost like they wasn't trying to leave things for chance. Like in our language, we'll say, "Well, that black woman was fly," and so we can have a debate over whether she could fly based off your learning ability. You would think she was flying, or did she look a certain way? But in the Metanetics, they, they, you know, they show you exactly what they were talking about. So, so what? I don't get the debate in that. You well, like, yeah, I don't get that. I'm confused now. That's the part I'm very confused. That it should have been a determinative there, showing that they was specifically talking about black people. You feel me? So I, I mean, that's interesting to me, right there. That's yeah, that and that and that's part of it. But the, but but yeah, see, the, and that wouldn't be enough because if that was enough, then then the the then it would it wouldn't be debated for for years and years as it, as it's been now, because you you have people that believe that. Uh, determinatives are wishy-washy and and iffy sometimes 
you know, as as it was called today, the sometime indeterminatives to where to where when you need them to be there, they're not there. And that's the only time you, they're not there is when you need them to be there to 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 back up an argument. <laughs> then then all of a sudden, all of a sudden they're they're sometiming. But the point is, is that there's a lot of different elements that that help us to determine scientifically what things mean and how they use. And so today we brought out. They showed historical comparative linguistics as a as a major tool. I was discussing uh, uh, the determinatives right now and the syntactic environment that words are in. And then it's more different between morphological and morphemic analysis. We have to use all of these things. These are all the tools we can use to, to really just uh, kill the entire argument in the debate. There's no reason why people should still believe that the word Kemet means... Uh, so, land of black skinned people. So let me let me shout out Ned and Ned for even stepping up in class, you know, to take on this conversation. Um, I think uh, more brothers need to really get involved. Brothers and sisters need to get into linguistics, and you know, shout out to the Pioneer Research uh, Team Research Center uh, in Baltimore. You know what I mean for the work that Ned be doing in these streets. So shout out to you, brother. But so I I mean, my goodness. For me, it's, it's just simple. So just find me a text where they talking about black people, and you see the term. It, it should. It don't seem like it should be that complicated. Well, hold on. Let me let me show you. Let me show you the the, uh, the text that was used uh, real okay. quick. Uh, you can see it on your phone, right? Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. All right. So this is one thing that's that's being used. Okay. So th this comes from um, a text. Uh, matter of fact, let me see. I, so people can actually look it up. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you all this. There is a there is a a a paper, an article, a very lengthy article that's part of a journal that um, a person wrote that really kills this argument years ago. And I'm surprised that it wasn't even brought up today uh, at all. Bring it up. Bring uh, it up. Really, that that's where this is is coming out of. Um, so this is from. Um, this is from the hymn to Sesostris or Sinwasaret the Third. All right, and this is about the 12th dynasty um, of Kemet. Okay, so this is coming from uh, Plate Three, lines three through five within that text. And so, what this is saying, I'll just read the translation again. We we kind of went over this already, but it says it was after he ruled uh, Egypt. I'm gonna skip the the parentheses stuff. It was, well, I got to say it because uh, we got stuck in it. Uh, it was after he ruled the people of Egypt, literally the black land, and after he had put the red land in his company that he came to us. It was after he had protected the two lands and after he had pacified the two banks that he came to us. It was after he had caused the people of Egypt to live and after he had removed its needs that he came to us. So this is a hymn. They, they use hymns to, to kind of sing. So you have this kind of uh, cadence. But... This is one of the examples. So, so if you look at the the way this is spelled, I don't know if you can see it on your phone. Good, but uh -huh. you see the this you see the uh, Kim, yeah, the I six clip, uh -huh. KM, and then the T, and then the people. So this is being used to say that it's talking about the people, and they've taken okay. this these two uh, glyphs here to mean the color black. Okay. Or, yeah, or, that's, is that charcoal, right? Uh, the crocodile tail. So uh, crocodile tail. All right. So so that alone is is a biliteral for KM 
and then the bread okay. loaf the bread loaf is tea mm. and then you have the people determinants of a man and woman and then the plural strokes so they're okay. using this to say it's talking about uh black people because kim means black but they don't know and this is what i was discussing right when you popped in nobody you would not know if if this uh combination of of the crocodile tail and the bread loaf is the kim that means black or a kim that means something else because so how about in context could, could you look at it in context and see what they was talking about? exactly and that's and that's good that you brought it up because that's what son uh david answered when i asked the question and that's exactly right so when you read this in context it's not talking about the skin color of anybody it's it's talking about right. a place because it how we know that is because mind you this is only an excerpt but if you were to read the whole story it's talking about yeah. locations places the red land they're not talking about red people who literally red skin color is red they're not right. talking about uh the f flat people when they say two lands it's, it's always talking about locations look the two river banks the two banks the red, the red land, land. say the red land too okay so let me say this for just the layman people listen so if i so so if i bring up the example of and i'm writing a story about going to a club and we go through the door and when we and when we open the door when the bouncers let us in the club we see a whole lot of fly black women around that they well dressed you know what i'm saying they look good they smelling good you know what i'm saying and we're going to talk to all them fly women so you couldn't come back 2000 years and say they was talking about women flying in the air because in context it's clear we was in the club they was well dressed so that's basically what you're saying right uh that's part of it because that's the importance of of the semantics uh the environment uh, context of what you said of what you said right, earlier right it's also so it wouldn't make sense for us to say they was flying around the club because first of all we know humans don't fly second of all why would you be flying around in a club and and the whole thing would be crazy to say that all right, I just wanted to make that point there. But I'd like to also say, uh, I remember a time, um, <clears throat> I think probably Saul went over where the actual claims come from. I remember a time when I was dealing with the Shaw Street Monty and we was t and, and, and I, we was in a group, and uh, we, we was talking about, I think it was on Facebook, he was talking about Dr. Ben. You know, that's like my favorite teacher. And so mm -hmm. he talked about how they came from the beginning of the hour with a God Hoppy dwells, uh, you know, on the papyrus of her nephew. And I was saying, yeah, that was it. And they would say, no, that's not it. And they explained it to me. And I could have been hardhead because Dr. Ben is my man. You feel me? Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, the group, you know, they explained, they talked to me. You know what I mean? They, they, they gave me respect, right? Of course, I respected them. And they kind of showed me what it was. Now, I could have been a big, I could have been, I could have been bananas and, 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 and barked at them. I probably would have got beat up on that subject, but. You know, it's just important for us to always be, be open for learning. Um, it, it's just very, very important. And so, you know, appeal to authority, document and all that. Like, that's not it. The point I really want to make is, is that you look at where the claim came from and you go to try to find it. And so, you know, uh, based off what I've learned, you can't find it nowhere in the papyrus of Hanefa. And so based off of this claim yeah. right here, you really can't find it on the papyri. It's going to kind of explain and yeah, so, and that's you know, a good that's a good uh, comparison because uh, see, all of our elders, we we love them, and and they and they have uh, done tremendous work that that had it not been for them, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. But sometimes right. sometimes people get stuck, and they either name drop, which is appeal to authority in in, yeah. in, in a debating situation, or they feel like uh, because we have emotional attachment that that these elders or whatever can't be wrong 
or should be excused from any kind of error, mistake or whatnot. So Asar opened up his presentation by by quoting Diop saying that he wants this Diop saying he wants people to uh, correct him and, and to look into what he's saying and not to believe him and everything. So I, that was uh, good. But yeah. but ju just for everybody listening, I want to let everybody know that if you want to understand how the word Kemet is used in its proper context, I'm going to point you to one story. There's many, but I'm going to point you to one major one. It's the tale of Sinuhe. Uh, that's how it's spelled. S-I-N-U-H-E. Sinuhe. Or Sinuhe. Um, look that up. Get it. Read it. The tale of Sinuhe. Um, matter of fact, I'll, I'll see if I'll post a link to it. But if you read that, you'll see where the word Kemet is used all throughout that story. Okay. All throughout that story. The word Tamare, Kemet, the word the word for Rani Kemet, which is the language of Kemet, is is in is in there. Okay. And so we'll see how it how it's used, how it's how it's how it's used in contra uh, in uh distinction between Desharet and foreign lands and stuff like that. It's not talking about the skin color of people. So what's the so uh, should we go to other languages, uh, other tribes, to see how they was using it, or, or does that make any sense, or, or what? Well, when we say using it, see, we got to determine what it is. Okay, but but okay, you talking about layperson? Let's look at the logic, right? Uh, in Kemet, now I want everybody to answer this. In Kemet, within the borders of Kemet, the scribes who actually represented the people on on the walls of Kemet everywhere. What is the dominant color that you see the scribes represent the male figures in all of the inscriptions and scenery and stuff like that? What was the dominant color? Wasn't it red? Yes. It's it's a reddish color. Some people say reddish brown, but it's a reddish color. It's not black in terms of the dominant uh, color that was used. For the majority of the entire life of Kemet, over 3,000 years, statistically, uh, about 90% of all depictions of all men, because women are a different story, and that's, a, that's another conversation, but the 90% of all depictions of all men are in this reddish pigment, this reddish-brown pigment. Now, another question. How did these same scribes, how did these same scribes, uh, uh, depict the southern neighbors of Kemet, people that was not uh, citizens of Kemet, but but people who lived south of Kemet. What was the dominant color used for that? Would that be the Nubians? They they depicted them as being black. Okay, so now logic, because Unc, this speaks to to when you said we be talking to lay people and, and keep it simple. So if the if the Egyptians represented themselves visually, because remember, color is a visual thing. Right. If they represented themselves for three over three thousand years as a dominant color, as in reddish brown, and right. they represented their southern neighbors in a dominant color of black or a much darker pigmentation, what sense would it make to name yourself black? But then don't name the people who you painted black, black. Oh, so, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, shit, that's crazy. It don't make no sense. 
right? Why go out your way to name your country the color black, but yet you never depict yourself as the color black? Because check this out. If I was a foreigner and I came into Kemet and prior to me coming into Kemet, I learned of the name Kemet and somebody told me that the, that the name Kemet uh, meant black and it was used because of the because of the, the people were black. Then I'm going to be like, OK, cool. And then I'm going to go down into Kemet. I'm going I'm to go into Kemet, take a trip, come into Kemet. What am I expecting to see? I'm expecting to see a representation of especially by its own people to represent themselves as black. But look what I see. I walk into Kemet and I see reddish brown everywhere, reddish brown. But then I see on the wall, I do see some black people. But they, but guess what? They're not Egyptians. So I would be confused as I don't know what. Uh, all right. So let's OK. So let's get to the crust of it. It, it. it always has something to do with our mental and the way we think about things as a people. Based off of the fact that we was enslaved 500 years, based off of the misinformation, based off of us trying to fight to get back to our history, uh, I guess uh, Diopson felt it important to, 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 to clearly show that these people were black. And, and so, but, but at the end of the day, I'll never forget it. Uh, when, when me and you had the conversation, you know, I was trying to do my little shuffle thing, you know, and you like, basically, <laughs> yo, so, so, so name, so go ahead and name yourself black. In a place full of all black people, how the hell am I gonna find you? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. If you name yourself the land of black people, you gonna you you will never find them. You're gonna find everybody. You'll never you'll never find the people you was looking for. It, it will be an impossible task. You know what? That's... Everywhere was black people. It'd be ridiculous. But yeah, and I'm glad you said that because that that goes right with what I just said. Because because if you name yourself black among other blacks, you'll never find yourself. But guess what? When you actually go to the place and look for them, you see red, you see reddish brown. And then you do see the black people who are depicted on the walls are called some foreigners. So you go to the wrong place. Then you be down there and looking, looking crazy. Like if you're <laughs> if you're if you're looking for namesake blackness, you're going to be you're going to be in Sudan and not even in Kemet. You're going, you, you're going to be in, in Kush territory. You're going to be in uh, Nahisi territory. Ta-Nahisi is the region that, that they translate as Nubians. I don't use the word Nubian for that. Um, but it's Ta-Nahisi okay. or the Nahisiu. And so the Nahisiu were depicted as a very dark pigment. Very, very dark brown to black in, in the depictions. While the Egyptians themselves uh, painted themselves as red matter of fact i'm gonna close with this i'm 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 gonna show this real quick man i've been saying that i've been saying that all night i know y'all like man yo, real yo, quick yeah you yo, yo, real, real quick i'm gonna I'm real quick y'all to death but real uh quick. but it's, it's worth it so let me just show this real quick and i said it again but hey uh give me one second let me set this up here but yeah so yeah. so those those are those are um uh, are, are good points um to be made and so and so, see, and, and it shows. I'm glad that you said, like, like how you saying you could have kind of fought it, but you but you uh, looked into it yourself and, and yep. all that good stuff. But the Nab's credit, I mean, he's fighting to be a linguist. So, I mean, he's supposed to jump out there like that and try to use the methods. I mean, that's important. You know what I'm saying? That's important as our development as Africans uh, to challenge ideas. You know what I'm saying? And, and he put his best effort forward. So, you know what I mean? I'm going to have to go back and watch it and make yeah. a fair assessment. But just based off me not knowing anything about linguistics, you know what I'm saying? Uh, just, just just using some reasoning, you know what I'm saying? And I know trying to reason 
and, and, and common sense don't really work in science at all, right? But just, you know what I'm saying? And I know it don't. But for the conversation, for the sake of people naming themselves a color, that they don't even depict themselves that color most of the time. They depict their neighbors that color, but still don't call them black. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's interesting. You know what I'm saying? It's real interesting. I guess, exactly. You know, so let me let me show this because that, that's a, that's a good point. But at the same time, at the same time, we 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 definitely have to uh, you know um, be cautious. You know, Accu what's the word? Acquiesce. Did I say that right? Yeah, uh, you can't acquiesce to faulty premises yeah. and things like yep. that. So yeah, uh -huh. especially when when people uh, spend four years to um, to make an uh, argument, it, 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 you have to evaluate the progress if if progress is being made. Uh, but let me show this real quick. Um, this is a presentation that, that I actually did uh, before, and I may I may do redo these because you know a lot of people may not have seen them because you know we kind of keep these in house or or you know to a smaller audience, um, people who are, who are dealing with the language, but you know probably need to start showing them on the Amara Squad channel. And yeah, because I'll be the dumb audience when it comes to linguistics. You know what I'm saying? Like I, you know, like Ned, man. Um, I talked to him about linguistics, man. He, you know, he, he has a pretty good understanding of it. But it's levels to this shit, though. I do understand that, and I and I think the brother's on his way. To be honest with you. Okay, now he check this out. Okay, so in this presentation, I'm not gonna go through the whole presentation. I'm just gonna be real quick because I want to make a point, and I'll just close with this. Real quick, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this was part one. It's a two part thing, but in part one, this was a non technical part. So I'm just gonna share this part, right? So the question, question number one: If the kingdom of e ancient Egypt's name Kemet means black. And refer to the skin color of its inhabitants. Does this reflect in how the inhabitants themselves portray themselves in art and in, in inscriptions? That's the logical question. That's the question that's, that's for the layperson. Okay. It's an if then question. Okay. So now statements. Statement number one. Naming conventions are of a very high importance in African communities. We all know this. Two. The king was the highest representative uh, for the kingdom and its people, after which the hierarchical administration and, and officials. We all understand that the king was the most important person in Egypt. And then you had the hierarchy of administration officials, right? The visor and the, uh, so on and so forth. OK, three, there is a plethora of material artifacts from ancient Kemet dating from its beginning to its end. Approximately over thirty five hundred years worth of material stuff. OK. Five, four, the scribes of ancient Kemet had access to materials to produce various pigments for their craft. They had access to produce black, red, white, green, and other colors. All right. So these are just statements, okay, that I think everybody will agree to. So now I'm just going to quickly go through these, right? So here's from the fourth dynasty. This is a statue of Yai Ib and Kaut. Or Kuaut. You see his color here, right? Reddish uh -huh. brown. Everybody can see that on the panel? Yeah. Oh, can y'all see this? Yeah. Okay. So this is fourth dynasty. This is old kingdom. This is old stuff right here. Fourth dynasty. Uh his hair is black. His body and face is Deshir or reddish brown. And like I said, I'm excluding women, not not as a as a male chauvinist thing at all. But women were depicted in um, 
in yellow and other uh, colors for a different reason. So I'm excluding that as part of the conversation. I'm only focusing on the men. Uh, here's another one. Fifth Dynasty, Tomb of Princess Idut. Seshat. What color is this gentleman here? Reddish brown. He's brown. His hair is black. Uh, look at all these figures here on the bottom here. Reddish brown. So, so as we as I'm showing these pictures, ask yourself if Kemet, as a word, was chosen to designate the country because the skin color of the people, then why on a national level, the norm for the scribes to represent its people, did they not depict people as black? Instead, they depicted them as a reddish brown. All right, let's keep going. Fifth Dynasty, the Mastaba of T. We have a, a gentleman here sitting here, reddish brown. We have people here attending to the cattle, reddish brown. Their hair is black, but their skin is reddish brown. All right. Compare fourth and fifth dynasty. There you have the two uh, colors. Now this is the range. Now notice, notice because of age and because of uh, the excavation, these colors may have been a little faded, damaged, and so on and so forth. And the pigments are not going to be exactly alike. But the point is, is that it is some form of reddish brown. All right, that's the point. Let's move on to another one. I'm just going to show these pictures quickly. Go through these uh, uh, sixth dynasty, the tomb of Meruka. Look at these figures, reddish brown. Another tomb, the Mastaba of the tomb of the sixth visor, uh, Mer, Mer F Nebeb, Neb F. Everybody in here is reddish brown, even though this picture is taken a little farther away, but you can still see all these figures, reddish, reddish brown. That's sixth dynasty. We walking through the dynasty, y'all. The Mastaba of the tomb of the sixth dynasty uh, visor again, reddish brown. His wife is in a yellow gold golden color. Uh, now we're going to bump up to the 12th dynasty. Up, oh, another color, reddish brown again. Two slightly different shades, but reddish brown. And they and and remember the scribes alternated these colors when you had a, a massive amount of figures connected to each other or near each other to show. Uh, the plentifulness to, to kind of multiply the multitude if they're trying to if they're trying to show that there's a lot of people doing something. All right. So they alternate a little different shade shading or um, pigments. OK, so you have a more lighter reddish brown and then a more darker reddish brown and they alternate one after the other. All right. Uh, let's. That was 12th Dynasty. Now, 18th Dynasty. Everybody in here is reddish brown. All right. Skip. I'm going to keep going. Go fast to 20th dynasty, reddish brown. All right. Now, all of a sudden, this is what I said, uh, uh, son D David. Now, all of a sudden, we get to some people who are not Egyptians. And so we see uh, a king of Kemet here, reddish brown. But then people who live south of Kemet, not within Kemet, again, south of Kemet, outside the borders of Kemet, who are painted depicted as what very 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 dark hues of a very dark brown to black these are the nehesiu coming to pay homage or pay tribute inside of kemet so now i'm not going to sh share anymore like i said it's a whole presentation i'm not going to i'm not going to uh, do that to you all 
But I want to just say this again, that if now this is just for the lay logic, this is basic logic. This is without without getting technical into the linguistics as as uh, uh, took place earlier. If Kemet. Uh, Sonnet Emiket asks, was Kemet always called Kemet? The answer was given. No, it wasn't called Kemet as far as the name of the kingdom until the 11th dynasty. So if Kemet took on the name Kemet for the purposes of designating the skin color of its people, then why in the 3000 over 3000 years of Kemet's existence, did they not nationally represent themselves indicative of that name black but yet they uh depicted people south of them foreigners as black that's the question nobody can get around that and we do consider the very rare occasion such as Ahmos nefertari who is depicted as black and Osir depicted as black. But if you look at the context of, of how and why they're painted black, and you read the text around it, there's a totally different reason. It has nothing to do with anything dealing with uh, Kemet. So again, the question stands. Because remember, a nation has national themes. Even today, you go to Kenya, Kenya has an official language. Kenya has an official flag. Kenya has a, an official uh, mascot or totem. United States, the mascot or or or, or uh, figure is the eagle. We speak a national language, an official language, English. We have a flag, the Star Spangled Banner, or whatever the case is. Every state within the United States has a a sac a sacred animal, a or a mascot. It has a flag. It even has a slogan and all these things. So it's no different. In ancient times, they did the same thing. So nationally, why? What is the national push or expression of Kemet's citizenship, citizenry in terms of skin color, reddish brown and not black? What is the national representation of foreigners south of Kemet? Black. So Kemet should be Sudan if that's the case. So the logic is flawed. Again, never acquiesce to a faulty premise because you will always be led to a faulty conclusion. This is just some basic layman type of logic that I'm um, saying right here, right now. That nobody can get around. Now, I could, I could show pictures from every dynasty that would take too long where we can see the reddish brown, reddish brown, reddish brown, reddish brown. And I can show you where every instance where they're talking about the Nehesiu people south, they're the darker pigments. Darker. Either they're dark, very dark brown, or they're even black. As you see in this picture right here. So even when we go here, this is a redrawing, of course, but the person on the on the right. Okay, let me let me ask. I'm not even give it away. Uh, let me ask anybody on the panel. Um, out of one, two, three, four, we got four figures here. Which one is the Egyptian? Number four. Number four. All right. Number four. So now, now look, look, look at how quick we can say that. 
We now, how did you identify that as the Egyptian? What they have on, <laughs> the hairstyle, beard. Yep. And the pigmentation uses because yeah. this is what you see in all of these. 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 This. This. The one on the left hand side for this. That's why you say that this is e Egypt. Now, if Kemet meant black skinned people, then I suppose to put Kemet up here. Let me write it here. Would I be correct to, to do this? Man. If, if, if I'd never seen the paintings or anything like that, and we go by Kemet meaning black people, then, you then, know, yeah, that's what I would point to. Exactly. You would, you would call this person Kemet, but you'd be wrong. This is a Nahisiu. This is a, a person from Nahisi, Ta Nahisi, the land foreign to Kemet, outside of Kemet. All right. So I want that to be understood. And 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 you know. So anyway, I'm doing this because Unc Unc uh, actually brought up a good point for the layperson without even without bypassing all the the linguistic argument. This is just some straight logic, like how people call you know common sense type of stuff these are these are questions that are born out of that it's going to force people to think on that kind of level uh let's do some more real quick you see these dark dark figures here in the bottom you would think that because the word kemet means black people that these would be kemet but they're not none of them are egyptians this is kosh right here Kash or Kush, Kushites. Here is the Iram. Now, mind you, these are all people that are from the region, the large ter uh, territorial region called uh, Nehesi. You have the Inu people that was there south. And this one is damaged. I can't make it out. It's small right this minute. But you have the Kushites, you have the Iram, and you have the Inu. As far as the dark. And here's probably close up. We can identify them. Kushites. And these are other foreigners. There's only showing one of the dark ones. So this is the Babylonians. The Senger. The Sashu. The Chehenu. The Keftiu. And the Naharin. So anyway. Uh, I, 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 I'll end it there. Here's a picture of Ahmos Nefertari. Who we do acknowledge that is painted black. That's how... Based on what people are saying, Kemet means that's how everybody in Kemet should be depicted nationally as a national color of, the, of its people. Like, I'm, 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 I'm going to give you an example of why that's important. When you when you go to the bathroom, right, in a public setting. To distinguish between men, male and female bathrooms, there is a common thematic emblem that's put on the door. That has a that has that has a certain look, and you could tell that it's a man. And you go, that's the men's bathroom. You know, one that's that's like a woman. That's the woman's bathroom. So that's an example of a common theme that's accepted and in sync and consensus of, of the people. So if Kemet was the name that meant black-skinned people, then where's the consensus in its national visual representation? It doesn't exist. 
All right, so with that, I'm, I'm going to stop because I can keep going and on and on. All right, so I don't even know who, who all still here in in, the, uh, in this room. Unc, still here? Nah, he rolled out. He's in the chat room, man. They don't want you to stop. But you've been going all day. I don't know why they don't understand that. Yeah, we've been going since <laughs> 9 o'clock in the morning, man. I, I've been I've been at it. Uh, well, actually, I was listening, you know, attentively listening. And like I said, uh, uh, you know, hopefully people go back and listen to it. Hopefully people go back and listen to it. it it's necessary and everything. I'm familiar with the arguments. I'm familiar with uh, Netanyahu's arguments because it's been going on for about four years. You know, I actually have document. I actually have the 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 discussions saved. I save all uh, worthwhile discussions, you know, of particular things that, you know, of interest to me. And um, I have I have the discussions from the very beginning. Before uh, Netanyahu was even dealing with linguistics. And, uh -oh. he, and he was arguing against linguistics, against proto uh, forms, against this, against that. And and uh, it's good. Yeah, against Mboli's work and the whole nine. But it's good to see the brother has uh, instead of arguing out of not knowing and just arguing for argument's sake. Now, at, at you know, the brother is taking the time to learn linguistics and apply it. So uh, that's what a uh, um Uncle was speaking to that Netanyahu ste stepped up and everything like that, and that's very good to see. Um, and so we got we have to applaud the brother, and hopefully other brothers and other sisters will will take the time out to do the same before they open their mouth. They at least uh, start studying something and start to apply it. But that alone is not enough. That, that goes for anything, and I hold myself to the same standard. You know, but this thing for me. The grammar and stuff like that, you know, I've, I've been dealing with this for seven years, over seven years. And there's there's, you know, as far as what's known about the language, I don't know everything. And and all the scholars will admit that we still have a lot to learn uh, about Egypt itself as a whole and the language. But from what is known, you know, I'm I'm pretty uh, competent and proficient. And confident in that. All right. So anybody got anything to close? And O'Shawn be like, "Well, I got one more question." Uh, uh, you know. Nah, I'm done, man. Done. Yeah, we'll call them Sean Queries. <laughs> yeah, I'm done. You said Sean Queries. I was stirring the pot on purpose, though. <laughs> yeah, I was stirring the pot on purpose. I I wanted to uh extend the conversation a little bit longer because of. The uncertain. I didn't want nobody to have uncertainty. What actually, what you witnessed today and actually took place, if you listened to it live, actually took place, and it was what you thought it would be. Ah, so you see the word semantics. Just un yeah, I knew this was gonna happen. Um, I just wanted to hear if you would show us something that could help us. Unk back in the building, but I I really did thought that he would grab. Uh, an old kingdom inscription and, you know, put it up and get into the inscription so that we could elaborate on that or he could introduce us to something that he didn't use before. Whether he had Brother Reggie's help or not, um, that's irrelevant to me. Um, you can get your information from wherever you can get it from if you feel the need to. At least he had the decency to ask uh you know or go outside of himself 
but I just thought that he referred to others a lot and not trusting only his own research and work at some times. And then he just appealed to authority other times. But I really didn't get some questions answered. I guess I was looking more so to uh, be taught um, by Neb in the essence, because when he was using these words and and the grammatical words and so forth, these uh, you can lose people in the chat room. Had you and Asar and Sanjeti never been mentioned in some of these linguistic terms before, some of us wouldn't have an idea. So, oh, but let me let know. me say let me say something to that though. Um, yeah. uh, that's where that's where it got kind of weird a little bit. Not not on on the part of Netanyahu or, or or Asar, but the whole thing because because the one of the intents of this was to record their uh, presentations for a panel of linguists. So so it it really wasn't uh built it, was, it wasn't really made for an audience at first so so you know i, I want to make that clear so so it wasn't really made for uh, an audience uh at first it was it was supposed to just be you know them coming together give their presentations it'd be recorded and then handed over to a mysterious panel of linguists that was that goes unnamed to this moment i, I have no idea who, who they are <laughs> uh, who they are now they may know so i mean i'm i'm not a i don't have skin in 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 the argument so it may not be for me to know so i'm not saying that uh it's being kept secret but at the same time it you would think that it would have been announced uh who the linguists are because you know just because link, we don't want to fall victim of appealing to authority but 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 we do want to go to linguists who specialize in in these uh things to get their commentary um, but still, so that's good. But I see uh, Jehudi Ma. He said, uh, "Would y'all please explain the symbolism of colors and why they were used uh, for the viewers? Um, the colors, yeah. See, that's going that's going to be a long thing. Uh, I can't, <laughs> yeah, I can't do that. Uh, uh, just a, I had one just, more one more thing. Real but quick. but you do. Uh, um, go ahead. Um, I just you know, but in in a sense if if I was a panelist or someone that was judging it, let's just say would i mean I'm just asking would um would it come off easier to not only put forth the work but define these terms and show and demonstrate that I know exactly what I'm doing here and no and, you have and, a good point you have a then that's see that that comes with with um the time spent in doing this kind of stuff. Like if you if you if you're used to giving uh, reports, uh, papers, um, doing, you know, even from like grade school, we start to learn this process by giving book reports. Like, you know, teacher would tell us to read a book and then we had to give our synopsis of it. And we had a certain format to follow in doing so. That is the pre that is the the uh, laying the foundation to be able to articulate things later on and prepare you for college and the research type of stuff and everything like that. And when you know that and you're good at that, then you already know that you have to define your terms. This is just something that's basic to scholarship period. You have to start off and define key terms. You have to define everything, but define key terms, uh, define what you feel may be new terms to, to a reading audience. And you have to know your audience that you're uh, uh, writing for or whatever. You, you may have a narrow scope 
of an audience or you may have a broader scope. And if it's if in either case, you still do uh, similar things. You define everything to make sure you cover your bases. Law works that way. Every contract, every single contract that you uh, read or a party to will have a section for definitions. And if it don't doesn't, then you better uh, get that contract looked at again. But it has a, a definitions because um, every single communication piece of communication, whether it's verbal or, or written, uh, creates its own uh, vehicle. And when you come inside that vehicle, you have to define things. And it may not be the same as as it's being used outside of the vehicle. So, for example, uh, if I were to say I got butterflies in my stomach, then within this context and vehicle, everybody on that, that's listening to me will understand that I am using butterflies as a metaphor for nervousness. Well, if I say I got butterflies in my stomach, I'm simply saying I'm nervous. But outside of this environment, somebody may take what I'm saying literally and think that I got some butterflies flying in my stomach and what's wrong with me? Or how is that possible? And think I'm crazy by thinking that butterflies are in my stomach. So every piece of communication uh, has a scope to it. This is under the domain of semantics and pragmatics. And this is something I encourage people to learn, at least the basics of both of those. Pragmatics is more situational communication. Semantics is is the more generalized meanings uh, based on consensus and things like that uh, as a gist of those so um but those that that's important to to understand but but just to just to uh touch on that uh, what Jehudi asked about the colors the colors we just have to understand that colors are used as ontological instruments uh in other words or taxonomic instruments meaning that colors are used as category labels uh the the top label of certain categories for example even today uh if i say what color comes to mind if I say the word love to you? Sean, what, what color comes to mind? Love. Red. Yeah, what color comes to mind if I say anger? Uh, Sana Emiket. I would say red too. Okay, what color comes to mind if I say um, uh, very balanced and healthy? Uh, Son Chris. Healthy. I don't know if he, he may not be available to speak. Yeah. Oh, say it again. Somebody said something. Uh, Senate, Vanessa wanted to say something. Oh, Senate, Vanessa, uh, what color? Health. Yellow. You say yellow? Yellow. Uh. Okay. Now now but now notice this. Now notice that 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 we can come up with certain topics. And we can actually assign them to a color. And we, we still do this to this day. Like, like intelligence is, is associated with the color blue, like the blues. Health is associated with greens, like vegetation, healthy food, greens, greens, greens. Have you had your greens today? You know, um, white is associated with things that are clean and stuff. And, and you know, people have a problem with that because we call people white. And then we know that that white is a symbol of cleanliness. And, and so in our minds, we're, we're wrestling with that. And, and black is deal with, you know, 
swarthy, dirty and stuff. And, you know, so we got angel food cake and, and devil's food cake, you know, that whole that whole thing. But the point I'm making, though, is that colors psychologically are used as taxonomical taxonomic or ontological instruments to categorize things. And every culture does it. Every culture does it. And in Kemet is no different. They take verbs. There's certain key basic colors that are used that are verbs that are um, that are normalized to become the colors. And they use them because they had this massive category categorization system uh, in place. All right. So there's more to it. But like I said, I, it's, it'd be take a long time to explain. So it's quiet now. So I am going to take this opportunity. Uh, to yeah, before you close out, I just wanted to say, um, dua, dua to um, obviously Asai Motep and and Lechenab, you know, for for taking all that time to you know show us this um presentations and because we we actually learned a lot and and I know that um uh, Neb did show um a PayPal account for donations. So if y'all go back, you know, definitely support because it does take work to put all this kind of presentation. It takes work. It takes time. And um, I just wanted to say one more thing is that um, I'm definitely very grateful. And I know you did mention this in the grammar class before that um, you intentionally um, started teaching us morphology and, and uh, before we get into the syntax, just to understand um, certain um, fundamentals and basic stuff that will help us um, understand the grammar bit. And um, because we haven't seen that applied, but I think today uh, for me, that kind of uh, put all that into place, why it is very important and um, and actually to see the benefits of understanding just that morphology and then getting into the grammar because that we did actually um, get into that today in the presentation as well. So I think that was just really amazing. And, uh, you know, kind of gave me, you know, that put that extra fire underneath me to just kind of learn you know and and push towards the grammar even though that that beginning section is has been kind of difficult for for me and i don't know about the others but for me to kind of grasp but i see the importance of it and why it all makes sense so dua okay that's good and one last thing uh on my screen i am sharing a picture and this is uh because i i last time i mentioned what i mentioned earlier about the skin color and i was trying to make it very simple and into the layman's terms of logic um what i mean by national theme like every nation has has national themes you know themes that permeate the culture okay so what you see on this screen here you see the deity what deity is is enthroned in this picture does anybody know Amun. Okay, excellent. So we have the deity Amun or Amun-Ra enthroned. All right. And we see a king on the right hand side giving an offering or doing or offering something uh incense to the deity. Okay. Now that king is depicted in a pigmentation indicative of all the other kings of Kemet. Reddish brown, correct? Now, I'm going to zoom in. Let's see if I can zoom in. Uh, so you all can see the name of this particular king. And let me see if I can zoom in this way. Okay. Now, can anybody on the panel make out who, which king this is? 
just take an educated guess by um, if you can see the glyphs in the shinu. Just going to drive my point home and that's it. Okay, so because I don't want it to be too long, I'm going to let you all know who this king is. And this is the confirmation or one of many confirmations of what I'm talking about when I talk about a theme, a thematic uh, theme of depictions for the inhabitants of Kemet that is not black. This particular king is none other than Ptolemy. This is a Ptolemaic king. That most people will vision. And if I say Ptolemy, you think of a European, a white person that we call pale or white. But yet this king, Ptolemy, is depicted in the standard, the standard depiction or theme color of the Egyptian inhabitants of a reddish brown. Was he actually reddish brown? No. But this theme runs and permeate the culture to the point where a foreign king at this time took on the personification of that very same color and it is not black all right so with that i'm going to say uh dua and uh yes definitely dua to the two brothers netaneb and asaramotep um for them to wake up early and and um and have a a, a, a six-hour presentation between the two of them man that takes some that takes some work right there and then you know wow so and then we hear have the having an after discussion going on even more and i'm and i'm still having a hard time to end the conversation so let me end the conversation i'm gonna say shimmer hotep and uh don't forget to support the channel um subscribe to the amara squad media uh channel that you're on that we're on right now subscribe to the session mindy metal nature channel we're going to start things back up we had to take a break uh for a while as as well um and also support come to the to facebook groups amara squad facebook group the Sessu Mani Metanetra Facebook group and chime in on the conversations. All right. And remember, this work, this type of work, we don't get paid for this. So when you see brothers, you know, uh, having businesses like like Unk has his business, uh, Abju Wear, uh, Netraneb is taking uh, donation considerations for the uh, Pernetra Research Center. Sessu Mani Metanetra, if y'all want to help out or do donate, we're setting something up um, um, as well. And then some some members of both the squad, both the Sessual Mighty Metanature, we have businesses. We have stuff that we do that you may uh, be able to support. I know um, um, Brother Damo has uh, a clothing line. Uh, I'm, I'm about to relaunch uh, Heka Apparel um, like any day now, probably tonight or tomorrow. And I'm going to make sure links are passed around. So when you see us whoever they may be to have businesses as well support because that's how we can we can have some kind of residual income to actually literally purchase time because this type of stuff takes time and we have to actually buy time we have families we got we got you know whatever and so in order to keep this up and, and actually to advance it it takes it takes money and and trust me these books that we really need to uh dive into and getting primary sources and taking trips and and doing this and stuff it, it is very expensive i could show you i could show you a eight volume series of books that every scholar of egypt should have and it costs twelve hundred dollars easy and it's no bootlegging it it's a hardback it's, it's like a encyclopedia collection 
And it actually has the epithets of all the deities in Kemet. And you know there's a lot of deities. All the epithets uh, and names of the deities of Kemet and explains, you know, the whole nine. All right, so. Saber. Uh, yes. For the record, I just want to say that Siobhan said that you're not done yet. She can tell when you're done. I just want to say that for the record. I am. So when you see Siobhan, you know how to address her, okay? I am done. So, <laughs> so uh, Shimon Hotep's son at Siobhan. And everybody on the panel, hey, I appreciate everybody coming in. I tried to give a link out. It's like people were kind of scared to come in here. And, you know, but um, hopefully people take away from every day, the whole, the whole thing. The two brothers' uh, uh, presentations are, are the main focus. Go back and watch it. I know I am. I'm going to go back and watch it and, um, and take, take more from it. And uh, also compare the, the things because we, we're dealing with two opposing um, claims or, or conclusions and things. So it's important to pay attention to both brothers presentations and everything um you know they're different styles so don't don't you know so so kind of um different styles of presentation that is and 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 and, and you know you got to kind of look beyond uh the style sometime or whatever and just get into the meat of what's presented was it organized was it logical was everything explained um does one point lead into another properly and correctly or you know was things all over the place all those kinds of things are are used and judged when you give an argument all right all right so anyway uh shimon hotep 